Live from the bell tower, taking a stand for your rights, your liberties, and all the bullshit in between. You're listening to Break the Bell Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the live edition of the Break the Bell Podcast. Hello, beautiful bell breakers. How's everybody doing out there? It is another Monday night. As it is a gorgeous Monday night. It is. It's like, what, 70 degrees yes, here? that's a first this what year. What was it, like 30 degrees last, last <laughs> yes. week this time? Yeah, yeah. It, it's ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, um, getting uh, enjoying it while it lasts, because I have a feeling yeah. we'll get another... Uh, we always do. Another push yeah. of cold here we always before... Do. We'll get another snowfall. Oh, don't say that. Uh, that's it's out. Ridiculous. It's out. There's that's, no putting no, it back. No, take it back now. That's <laughs> bullshit. How's everybody doing out there? Once again, we are live. It is 7 p.m. or uh, ish, ish on Monday night, yes. which is when we stream live every single week. So uh, if you're new here, if you're listening to this in the future, just know in, in advance that every Monday night we do this live at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. So you do the math on whatever coast you're on because I can't do that math in my head. So no, it's Monday. Especially not. Did you hear uh, the government's planning on, like, Getting rid of uh, daylight savings time. It's about or making time, it permanent. Man. It is about okay, time. Okay. Okay. The problem I have with that is they waited till after they stole an hour from us <laughs> to decide. Why but couldn't it's they subjective. Do, no. Why couldn't they make this change last week, <laughs> and then we didn't have to wake up an hour earlier? You're, you're right. We we lost that hour, but it's, now it's going to be daylight longer. It's. <laughs> I, I don't give a shit. They took an. <laughs> I'm not gonna. Normally, they take an hour at the beginning of the year. I'm it's like, the well, government. at least, at least I'm gonna get this back. You think at they're the gonna end of the give year. it to you and then no. stop? No, they got to take it away. First. Fucking taxes. Next <laughs> next year, they're gonna take another hour. Another away. hour. Yeah. Yes, it's gonna it, be a 22 it, hour. It is ridiculous, <laughs> and it, it's just another tax by the government. They're taxing our time now, so it, it's kind of bullshit. So yeah. I feel like I should get part of that back on my income tax return this year, just like <laughs> an hour of sleep. Yeah. That's all I okay. want. I, you can keep your tax return money. I just want my <laughs> sleep back. Uh, Joseph says, Fool's Spring. Yes, yes, this is the Midwest. Joseph, I, I, I don't know where you're, you're at these days, so... I don't know if you're in the Midwest, but in the Midwest, we always can rely on a, yes. a second a second dose of winter before the real spring hits. So um, I, I got to stick up my butt last uh, over the weekend to do some gardening, but I didn't really do any planting because I have yeah. a feeling that that's going to come. So No, that's wise. I was going to mention when you were like, I'm hand tilling this week. I'm like, that's yeah. awesome. But what if it snows again? <laughs> I, I just want to loosen the, yeah. the, the shit up and stuff. Uh this week we have a special guest that's going to be on in just a couple minutes. Uh, Joseph says he's in Grand Forks, North Dakota, so he's probably gets all the winter. He, no do, he doesn't get any spring at all. Right. Uh, this week, uh, like I started to say, we have the the pleasure of having a special guest on, and we talk a lot about like taking charge of your own life, mm -hmm. taking control of your own life, whether that's your finances, your your political rights, all, all your freedoms, and all that yeah. shit. Um, Stocking up for uh, the apocalypse, whatever yeah. it is. We, we talk about taking control of your own life. Uh, one thing we haven't really hit on that seems to be probably the most important is taking control of your own health. Because mm -hmm. um, without your health, I guess, uh, none yeah. of the rest of that shit matters. And, and I think the last couple of years really came clear that you can't rely on the, the government for anything. Or anything, let alone your health. Except to take your sleep away. Well, right, yes. And your, exactly. And your money. And your but, money and your time. Yeah, so so this week we have the pleasure of having on a nutritional therapist. His name is Jay Gulanello. Gula, Gulanello, yes. I think. 
I, I told you how to pronounce it. You then, did. Then you I had a very brain succinct fart. about it. Yeah, and, and then I had a brain fart really yes. quick. So um, he's actually in the uh, <laughs> in the waiting room waiting for us, listening to me mispronounce his name. So he'll correct me, I'm sure, when when we get him on. But he's going to talk. I, I've got a lot of questions about him. Yeah. I, I heard him on one of my favorite podcasts is the Quite Frankly podcast. Yeah. I listen to that regularly. Not yeah. every night, but but yeah. probably at least twice a week. And he's been on it like two or three times, mm-hmm. and I, I've listened to... All his uh, interviews on the Quite Frankly podcast at least two or three mm-hmm. times just because every time I listen, I get more information on mm-hmm. your health and how uh, your nutrition affects your health and how yeah. like what would you be surprised to know that what you put in your body actually affects your health? Uh, no, not at all, actually. <laughs> no, I feel as you're my, sitting my pa- I know. drinking a Mountain Dew. I know. Okay, but I needed some caffeine. I was falling asleep. <laughs> he's it was like, a long day. He shows up. He's like, we're going on with a, with a health ask- I, expert. I've got my daughter on this new health kick where we get up at 6 in the morning and we work out together. And so, um, you know, which is great, except for when you go to bed at 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, so. <laughs> which is most nights for you. Right. Uh, well, I'm sitting here smoking a pipe and drinking caffeine, right. too, yes. so I, I can't say too much. But he's going to be on just a few minutes uh, before we get into that interview with him, because I think it's going to be good. Like I said, I yeah, have a you ton sent of me, questions. You sent me the interview, and I listened to it this today while I was driving, and yeah, it was it was fantastic. So. Yeah, and I, I've got tons of notes, like tons of questions here written out. I don't know how much we'll get to, but... Um, I want to talk a lot about, like, obviously health and nutrition. Then in the second half, I want to get into, like, uh, like corporate food for profit and, uh, like, big pharma and things like that. Like like the shit we like to talk about yeah. in the second half, uh, the, the big corporations that are taking over the world and, right. and trying to control, control our lives and stuff. So um, that's the stuff, if we get time, I want to talk about in the second mm-hmm. half. So stick around for the second half. Uh, before we get into the show, obviously, we got to mention our sponsor because, once again, this show is brought to you by coffee and freedom. Uh, <laughs> run your mouth, coffee. In that, not in that order, though. Not in that order. <laughs> mostly coffee, a little less freedom. <laughs> Specifically that order, sure. Bill. Uh, our sponsor is Run Your Mouth Coffee. Once again, they are a coffee company that supports your right to say whatever the hell you want, supports your right to run your mouth, have a show like this where we can get up and, like, Talk shit about big pharma, big big food corporations and stuff without fearing of getting kicked off YouTube, deplatformed, whatever it is. Um, Run Your Mouth Coffee supports that. Visit them at rymcoffee.com. Tell them we sent you by using that promo code BREAKTHEBELL. That's all one word, no spaces. And you'll get 10% off your purchase plus free shipping. And you'll be able to enjoy delicious coffee, which... I know Jay is going to say coffee is amazing for your health, so I'm just going to put that in his mouth right now before he gets on. I'm pretty sure one cup is okay. Uh, one pot, maybe? <laughs> Two pots? I don't know. Sure. I, 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 I drink more than a pot a day, I'm sure. Yeah. So, um, But I did cut out energy drinks, so we're good that's, there. That's huge, I think. It is. We'll um, find out. Uh, enjoy freedom. Enjoy freedom of speech. And enjoy deli- delicious coffee delivered straight to your door. RYMCoffee.com. That's all. We got to get into this show because uh, Jay is waiting for us, and I don't know how much time he has, and I don't want to take up too much of his time. Uh, So make sure you check us out, as always, all over social media. You can find us on most of the main platforms at Break the Bell Pod, or you can go to our website at BreakTheBellPod.com, and you can find links to all all our social media and stuff like that. Uh, Find our merch at BreakTheBell.BigCartel.com. You can check out some of our shirts and stuff. I was going to promo them, but... 
I don't want to keep Jay waiting, so we're going to get right into this intro video. You ready for this? I'm ready. I'm ready. Get right into this intro video, and when we come back, we are going to be on with nutritional therapist Jay Gulinello. Here we go. What did you say? You talking to me? What? What the heck are you talking about? What did you say? What did you say? What did you say? Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What are you saying? What did you say? Are you talking to me? Well, maybe he was talking to me. What did you say? Talk to me. What in heaven's name are you talking about? Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me, baby. Did you just say? What did you say? You didn't to me. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. All right, I'm gonna kill this music fast because I kill. I ruined it anyway. Um, we are here, like I said, with Jay Gulanello. He is a nutritional therapist. He is. Uh, he has his master's in clinical human nutrition. He's an inch ancestrally based practitioner, and I'm going to get into that because I have no idea what I've that is. I've never heard of that. That's I really interesting either. to me. And he's also the founder of perpetualhealth.co. So uh, you can check him out there. You can check him out at um, on uh, Instagram, where he primarily hangs out, and that is also uh, the the handle perpetualhealthco. Is that right, Jay? Do I, did I get all that right? You, you got it all right. Thank all right. you so much uh, for having me and for, um, you know, letting everybody know all those long credentials. Sometimes it's funny when I hear people talk about me like that for that long. Well, this, is just, this is just uh, <laughs> the, the bio section on your Instagram feed. I copied verbatim. So uh, just, re- just reading off that because I wanted people to know a little bit about you before we get into this. Uh, Jay, how's it going? It, it's great to have you on. We've been, I've been trying to get you on for a little while, but you've been busy with uh, schoolwork and stuff, uh, getting more credentials to add to your, your Instagram bio there. So how's it going, Jay? It's great, man. It's uh, it's great to be here, and it's actually great to have the time to be here because that means that uh, grad school is uh, officially over. So um, that's gonna I'm, be a I'm great feeling. Excited. Yeah, yeah. I, ima- <laughs> it's great, yeah. <laughs> I imagine that's awesome. Yeah, well, I think I reached out to you in like early January, maybe late December, and you're like, I'm gonna have to wait till the end of February, March timeframe after all this other stuff's out of the way, which which worked out well for us. So yeah. So I'm I'm glad you now have the time to come on because, like I said, I mean I've heard some of your stuff and. It like a lot of it blew my mind. You yeah. it, I mean, obviously, nutrition is important to your health, but some of the stuff you talk about, I, I don't think anybody else really. I don't hear anybody else talking about. No, I actually, I, I got home because, like I said, I I had to drive a lot for my job today, so I listened to the podcast that um, the interview that Craig had sent me, and so I got home and I'm telling my wife all about it. I'm like, oh yeah, and 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 Kellogg and and. And, um, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, and, and she's like, oh, yeah, I know that. I'm like, what? And Well, she teaches religion. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I, it's the first I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all that stuff was news to me. I'm just like, my, my jaw was dropping. Yeah. So, Jay, first I got to point out, um, one of your claims to fame, your, your biggest credentials, is that you got fired from a hospital not too long ago. So, um, <laughs> not, and for, not for... 
Um, I, I'm pretty sure all our listeners here are would would have gotten fired for the yes. same reasons. It, it, I'm guessing it's all COVID related, from what I've heard. Um, you refused to do a, some of the uh, requirements that they were asking you of, and they showed you the door. Yeah, that that's pretty much it. Um, I had, I mean, I to be perfectly honest, I I, I saw it coming for pretty much the full two years of, mm-hmm. of the COVID fiasco. And um, I was just a little bit ahead of the curve. And so I, I sort of had planned this and, um, you know, it was, it was sort of a last minute thing. They promised us, no, no, it's not going to be mandatory. And then what do you know, it became mandatory. Mm-hmm. And, and that was always my line in the sand. So it, yeah. it really wasn't even a debate for me. Once the topic came up, I, 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 you know, uh, informed them of my line in the sand and they informed me that I would no longer, uh, be employed there, which was too bad because it was it was two and a half years and it was a great um, learning gig uh, for me because I actually had that job almost through the entirety of grad school. Basically, I missed the last. It was, I got fired in my last two months of grad school, so um, that was a little disappointing because it was a struggle trying to finish grad school and also look for a new job simultaneously. Mm. Uh, but it was um, it was a great job because I was actually working in a hospital and I wasn't working with patients. I was actually responsible for taking care of the staff. Right. So my all my, all my clients were the hospital doctors and nurses and employees. Which so I was essentially taking care of the people that were taking care of of, of the public. And that's amazing to me that they trusted you to take care of the doctors and stuff. But when they wanted you to get the vaccine, and you're like, no, I don't really, I don't really want to do that. I don't trust putting that in my body. They're like, well, then we don't have a place for you. So you would think they would maybe like take your your insight and put it towards everything. <laughs> You would think, um, but I think probably you guys and your audience probably knows that you know over the past two years that just the science in general, the entire scientific community is is undergoing a um, well, what I would consider a purge. I mean, I think mm-hmm. a lot of I, I think when this is all said and done, I think a lot of scientists are going to have to kind of disappear into the background with their tail between their legs because there there hasn't been let's just say there hasn't been a lot of critical thinking over the past mm-hmm. two years. And and I never claim to have all the answers. In fact, that's one of my other I would say claim to fame is I always tell people, listen, humility is the first place you have to start, especially when you're dealing not in just science, but when you're dealing with the human body, because every human body is different. I try to treat every person that's in front of me differently. While I have some guidelines that I work within, I always try to keep in mind that uh, I'm dealing with an individual and that individual needs individual care. And I think you know, it used to be called precision medicine in the medical uh, literature as late as 2018. And it seems that we've done a sort of 180 in the past two years from, you know, from uh, precision medicine to one size fits all is the way to go, which is um, a, a little ridiculous in my opinion, because there's no one size fits all for anything. No. Uh, but, uh, apparently we've decided this is the way it is going to be going forward in medicine, at least for the time being. And, and the rest of us who don't believe that are going to have sort of a, a mighty struggle uh, in front of us. So, so I mean, we could probably spend the entire episode talking about <laughs> COVID and uh, the ridiculousness around the, the health surrounding uh, the COVID and the vaccine and all that stuff. But, I mean, we beat that horse for the last two years, and I'm sure you've uh, dealt with it for the last two years. And I don't think people really uh, – that that's not what they want to hear too much about anymore. I mean – uh, maybe we could do another episode about that in the future, but um, hopefully not. Hopefully, hopefully not. <laughs> Ho- hopefully, uh, Anthony Fauci goes away and retires, and this whole thing goes away someday. But uh, for now, uh, I want to talk more about just like basic health and what you do and what. So, what is it that 
you do? What's your expertise? Um, like I have a nutritional therapist. I have ancestrally based. Like we said in the intro, we, neither of us really know what that is. So explain as long or as short as you want what that is and what it is exactly that you do. Sure, sure. I I totally agree. By the way, I'm, I'm I'd be happy if I never heard the term COVID any uh, you know ever again. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so uh, so ancestrally based is really just more of a descriptor. It's not any kind of official title. It's it's how I sort of um, have thought about myself, and it's I guess it's sort of the community that I, if I was to say that I exist in a community, it would be the ancestral based community. And basically, the idea behind that is that we are trying to mimic things um, prior to the time of chronic disease. So obviously we know that our ancestors, hunter-gatherers, they died of different things than we die of. They died of exposure. They died of, you know, animal attacks. They died of things like that, you know, wars between tribes, although I suppose we, we die of that today as well. Um, but they didn't die of things like chronic disease. They didn't have the heart disease. They didn't have diabetes. They didn't have autoimmune diseases. They didn't have the things that are running rampant in society today. Mm -hmm. So the idea of ancestrally based um, medicine or ancestrally, ancestrally based nutrition is to harken back to those times. What, what were those people doing that essentially allowed them to be free of all these diseases that we today are struggling with? And we are on a collision course um, with unsustainability, uh, mm -hmm. just even financially speaking, it's going to be pretty soon it's going to be unsustainable to deal with the diabetes epidemic and the obesity epidemic. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, so that's what ancestrally based means. It's mimicking things like fasting, right? Fasting is something that we do today and people think it's a fad, but fasting to our ancestors was just a way of life. I'm sure they would prefer have never to have had to fast because <laughs> right. they would have always had a successful hunt sure, or a successful right. gather, but they always, you know, they didn't always. And so mm -hmm. they were sort of our biology evolved in a time of feast and famine. And so we use, ancestral principles to mimic the things that had us relatively healthy at that time. And then when you combine that with all of the, the sort of luxuries we have of modern medicine to be able to take care of us if we're in a horrific car crash, which is what Western medicine is great for. I, I know that I sort of slam Western medicine a lot, but the truth is if I'm in a car accident, there's no other time or place that I want to live. It's right now. Sure. They can put me back together. They can make the pain go away. They can do all those things. But in terms of caring for the chronically ill individual and prevention, they've hardly progressed at all. They, they, they only know how to symptom manage, yeah. and that never addresses the root cause. And that's sort of what we're after in the functional medicine space. And that's what ancestrally based means. It's combining the nutritional and lifestyle aspects of our ancestors and uh, combining that with the, the benefits of, of modern medical care. Now, is ancestral based, um, is that kind of up and coming or has it been around for a while? Because again, this is the first time I've heard of it. So interesting to me. I, honestly, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I found my way to it probably, I would say 2014. Okay. But there are people that I know of that have been practicing this way. You know, think of things like the paleo diet, mm. right? That would be a form of, of ancestral nutrition. Okay. So that's been around for quite a while. People have been talking about that for, for a very long time. I think it's still a small community, although, again, you know, we all live in our little echo chambers. Right. So to me, it's actually funny when somebody says, I haven't really heard of that. I'm like, really? I swim <laughs> in that sea all day long. So mm. I don't actually know when when it started, but but I would say that the the community is growing and it's a good thing because a lot of the people in that community are reversing disease. Mm. And I think that's probably the most powerful thing to let your audience know is that you know, while some diseases have a genetic predisposition and you can certainly lean one way or the other, your environment, your nutrition, all of these things play a huge role. And I've seen people 
recover in dramatic ways just by changing things like diet. I, I have, I've seen it myself personally, and I've also had anecdotal evidence of people messaging me and just know people from the community. So it's, it's an, an amazing tool. And I hope people um, hearing this for the first time, start to dig into it a little yeah. bit to see what they, what they uncover for themselves. Now, now um, you talked <clears throat> when you first started talking about this stuff, um, you had mentioned that uh, the, our ancestors and stuff, uh, yeah, they would get eaten by animals or stuff, but they didn't deal with like diabetes or heart heart disease. Now, what what do you say to people? Because I'm sure this comes up. At least it's in my head. Um, well, maybe they just didn't have the equipment or the technology to diagnose that stuff, and it was there. They just didn't notice it, or they didn't find it, and they just because I mean, people were bleeding people out for <laughs> like bloodletting and stuff as as recently as what a hundred years ago. So, um, it is it possible that some of these existed and we just didn't know, or is this stuff that was, that's come up in the future because, or recently because of the stuff we're putting in our body with uh, processed foods and stuff like that? Well, it's a great question. And I mean, I usually go back to t a time when we did have enough um, evidence to be able to detect these kinds of things. Uh, you can take heart disease, for example. The first case of heart disease in the medical literature was published in uh, 1912. So we had the ability to detect these kinds of things, you know, prior to that, but, but that was the first recorded case. And then even after that, it was, it was at, uh, it was at levels that were unheard of in terms of, you know, it was just a very rare occurrence. Um, and, uh, so, so we had the ability to detect, and then we saw this exponential rise in heart disease with the advent of around that time, the early 1900s, huge changes in our food supply. I would argue that's the most significant change to, human physiology. It was, it was right around that same time period where, where pharmaceuticals began to enter the, the, the mainstream and also uh, highly processed foods like Crisco was one of the first hmm. hydrogenated oils. You know, they, okay. the, the chemists invented this food and they marketed it as a replacement for animal fats. And prior to that, we had consumed 99% of our added fats came out of animal origin. And we had no heart disease. So when people tell you that saturated fat and eggs and things like that are the cause of heart disease, well, the medical literature says otherwise. Mm -hmm. And there, there's probably, again, a whole podcast you could do on that because I think it's multifactorial, um, our lifestyle and our nutrition and everything. But um, it's a great question because I'm sure that there are some things, obviously, that we couldn't detect, but there didn't seem to be obesity. You know, we're able to look at some of the carbon records, the fossil records. We're not finding evidence of the things that we find evidence of today. So while it's not 100% guaranteed, um, it, it seems like chronic disease, and, and actually, now that I think about it, if you look at some of the more, um, in the lesser developed world, they still tend to have less chronic disease. Now, they suffer from communicable diseases, mm -hmm. but that's where some called the hygiene hypothesis comes into play is that we have sort of cleaned up our environment almost almost uh almost too well and now we suffer from from these other autoimmune type diseases because there does need to be a balance we have a microbiome which which is a, a collection of bacteria so we don't live in a sterile environment and we aren't sterile mm -hmm. so i guess you know again I'm, I'm thinking just on the fly here but but i would say you could also look at uh, ancestral populations that are still relatively untouched by Western civilization today, mm -hmm. and you don't see those diseases like the Hadza tribe in in Africa. And there, so there are some places that are still relatively untouched that still don't have those diseases. So, yeah. so uh, my argument would be that that it is the advent of modern medicine and modern food that has brought on some of the chronic disease epidemics. Hmm. And it, it is interesting that you can 
go take a there are still tribes and stuff out there that still have that grassroots level where we can look at that and compare the two so people can't really make these assumptions well uh, it's because of modern technology or whatever well well what about these people over here? They're not suffering from these. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's interesting. I'm going to be jumping around my notes because I'm going to play off the things you're saying, but um, you keep just kind of lining up with a lot of my notes already. But you you just brought up the whole uh, invention of Crisco and vegetable oils and seed oils and stuff. And the, this article that I have here, this is something that's been popping up in the news, at least the news I read, a lot this week. And it's this um, – here, let me pull this up. It says, uh, the groundbreaking conference reveals health risks of seed oils. And <laughs> I, I've done some, uh, just reading some of these articles, and it was talking about um, how, like one that I read said that Procter & Gamble was the first ones to come up with like cottonseed oil. And what it was, was they were trying to figure out how to reuse like cottonseed waste that was basically deemed a biohazard mm. at the time. And with through putting some artificial chemicals in it, they produce this this cottonseed oil and then they paid i think it was like 150 million or something like that several quite a few million dollars to the american heart association to get the american heart association to say hey this stuff's good for you and uh i don't know if you remember jump rope for heart and stuff the american heart association is everywhere it's drilled into kids as young as like fourth fifth grade whatever so uh talk a little bit about uh, what have you heard? Is is this a new thing, or is this just what people are just now realizing that uh, seed oils are not good for you? Well, that's a great article. I, I was looking at the data. I have not seen that yet, so now I now I know what I'm doing after the interview. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, but no, I mean, I, I would say that's another thing that uh, is interesting to me because in the ancestral community, it's well known that seed oils, and in fact, they're always referred to in the ancestral community as seed oils because mm-hmm. they're not from vegetables. That was a brilliant marketing term. I was going to say vegetables. that. It's like, doesn't it sound so healthy to say something like vegetable oil? It's well, obviously yeah, got to right. be better than animal fat. Yeah. Uh, vegetable oil. It comes from, you know, vegetables and kind of like uh, uh, what's what's the sugar? Corn modified cornstarch or oh, whatever right, yeah. uh it, it sounds so much healthier than sugar because it's got the word corn in <laughs> right, it. right yeah <clears throat> yeah no so you're spot on with that and i think um seed oil so i i always i i'm very careful to use the term industrial seed oil because that's what it is it is these oils do not occur naturally they are the process to create them is it, you can look it up it is amazing it involves um extracting uh, the oils at high heats. I mean, you think about how much oil you can actually, you know, when you take something natural, like an olive oil, you can press, you can press an olive and you can get out the oil, mm-hmm. right? Same thing with coconuts. You know, these are natural oils that occur in plants that can be, you know, cold pressed and, and done without heat, done without um, solvents like hexane. Those are some of the tools that have to be used to create things like canola oil, which is actually from a plant called the rapeseed, which is now you know why they call it canola oil because <laughs> no one would buy a product called rapeseed oil. <laughs> All right. So, so, so these oils are heavily processed and they're also incredibly high in omega-6 fats. And so we have, we have these two uh, essential fatty acids, omega-6s and omega-3s. Omega-3s, generally speaking, are anti-inflammatory, like your fish oil. That's why people say, oh, you know, take your fish oil. It's, it's good for you. It's anti-inflammatory. Omega-6 is pro-inflammatory. Now, it's not inherently bad because we need, we need pro-inflammation. We, we need pro-inflammatory fats in the body because 
to inflame is to heal. If we get a cut, the body inflames as part of the healing process. If you couldn't inflame, in fact, I've had clients who had such low omega-6 levels that they couldn't heal properly. Hmm. So omega-6 is important, but in ancestral cultures, you're looking at diets that maybe were about a one-to-one -one ratio or a three-to-one ratio of these two oils. So they were very, very close. In Western diets, because of the addition of these industrial seed oils, we are now consuming roughly 25, 20 to 25 to one omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. So we are heavily into the pro-inflammatory um, realm, which is why people now think a lot of diseases are driven or at least start at the core with inflammation. So it's this ratio that really matters a lot. And it's, it's not just about taking extra omega-3s in order to compensate. It's about bringing down the absolute levels of these fats. And the best thing you can do, the best thing your audience can do uh, even before removing sugar is removing these industrial seed oils. And even if you don't cook with them, you have them in your house because they are ubiquitous. They are in every single packaged food out there. Soybean oil, canola oil, cottonseed oil, safflower oil, you name it. So you got to really look through your cabinets. You got to, you got to ruthlessly eliminate those because they embed themselves in cell membrane. So your very cells in your body will become made of these fats. That's the thing about fats. You know, so you got to be really careful when choosing healthy fats. And so um, that's the that's the number one tip I can give anybody. These are not ancestral foods. They are uh, industrial, modern foods, and uh, they just don't belong in the human body. And the human body doesn't really know what to do with them. Um, mm -hmm. And they cause a lot of problems. Well, now, uh, you talk a lot in the interviews I've, I've listened to um, about, like, food additives and, uh, like, addictive unnatural engineered foods that like yeah, the um, bliss point i yeah. think is what you had mentioned <laughs> yeah just just the right. different uh the foods and how they affect your brain now versus like whole foods or like natural foods like fruits and vegetables and like grass grass-fed meat and stuff like that talk a little bit about that because i i know people know that like popcorn's addictive because of whatever but um explain that a little uh from your standpoint like explain it just just explain how that works for us because um, uh, we don't really understand, I guess, how that's addictive. Yeah, it's a tough one because I think a lot of people, there's a lot of blame around when it comes to food, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone's overweight or has a disease, generally speaking, you have people say, well, you know, you just don't have enough self-control. In fact, the calories in, calories out crowd who think that it's all about energy balance would say, you just need to move more and eat less. In fact, I think I think, you know, Coca-Cola or somebody has a slogan like that, right? So, so in other words, it's, it's saying that everything in moderation is fine. Well, I respectfully disagree with that because mm -hmm. there are some foods that are designed, and I mean, I use the word designed intentionally. They are designed to addict and to make it almost impossible to consume uh, on, on any level of, of moderation. In fact, I think Lay's potato chips has the slogan, you can't, I bet you can't just eat one, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, and so you mentioned the bliss point before, and that's that's there's a whole uh, division of science that's dedicated to creating the perfect amount of sugar, salt, mm. fat, mouthfeel, everything to to create an environment in your brain that keeps that drive alive for more of those foods. So if you're already susceptible to that, and you've never really been introduced to real foods, so you've already got your palate has been hijacked from a very early age. You've been mm -hmm. eating goldfish crackers when you're a baby. You've been eating, you know, processed foods growing up. And, you know, you just, 
you almost have no chance in that environment. Plus we live in a 24 seven food environment. Right. And when the food environment is all of those kinds of convenience foods, um, it's really going to be a struggle. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do, I was actually just reading a paper the other day on this, that, you know, the war about whether it's carbohydrates or fat that drive obesity and type two diabetes and disease is it's not invalid, but I think what's more important and what this paper talked about was that foods of, the sort of paleolithic era or just whole foods in general, while some of them were higher in carbohydrates and some of them were high in fats, those foods inherently didn't create metabolic dysfunction. And, and there are many people who exist on a high carbohydrate diet and don't have metabolic dysfunction. And there are many people who exist on a high fat diet and don't have metabolic dysfunction. But it's the processing of the food that seems to create this unique environment where the, again, the amounts of flour, oils, you know, I, I would call those fats the bad fats, right? The, the the seed oils and the sugars. Those things combine in in a unique way that nature doesn't allow for. There, there's no real combination of those in nature. You can't find high fat and high sugar and the perfect amount of saltiness. And you know, mm -hmm. th that doesn't mm -hmm. exist in nature right. in whole food forms. We create that, and then our our entire reward system, our entire palate, everything gets hijacked, and we sort of lose control over satiety. I can't tell you how many people eat beyond the point of being full because oh, their right. satiety mechanisms are completely hijacked. Yeah. Well, I uh, actually, I I try to get on health kicks a lot. And then like days like today, I had gumdrops for breakfast today. But um, <laughs> when I first heard you talking on uh, the Quite Frankly show, I went, I was already thinking I, I need to eat healthier. I, I kind of feel like crap. So I have no energy and stuff. So um, we're... We're in uh, the service business, so we're driving vans around a lot. So we eat at gas stations a lot, which is the worst for you because it's all all overly processed yeah. shit food. But um, there's one gas station that actually does sell for ridiculous amounts for like six bucks, but they sell salads and stuff. So mm -hmm. I went and I bought a salad at the gas station. I bought a little cup of cottage cheese and a couple boiled eggs, mixed it all together. It was less than 500 calories, but I was like super full after eating that. And less than 500 calories, that's, like, not even one of the, the mm -hmm. sandwiches that they have there. And I can't eat one of those sandwiches and not eat another one because yeah. it, it doesn't <laughs> satisfy me to just have one sandwich. Mm -hmm. And after eating a salad that was, like, I think I added up, like, maybe 460 calories, I'm like, man, I'm, like, really full for mm. just eating, like, leaves and eggs and stuff. <laughs> um, and then I listened to you talking about how what, – exactly what you're talking about now, how, the like, these foods – um, are meant to keep you eating them and keep you unsatisfied right. so you're eating more. And it just kind of clicked in me that it's just like, wow, this he's actually, mm -hmm. he actually knows what he's talking about because the salad actually <laughs> filled me up. <laughs> I have clients who experience that on, on a regular basis. Uh, and that's one of the questions I ask, actually, when I go through someone's food journal, often I'll, I'll try to find, you know, even if they're eating Lucky Charms and, you know, Pop-Tarts, I'll find the one meal where they had you know, a steak with asparagus and avocado or scrambled eggs and avocado for breakfast. And I'll always grab that meal and I'll say specifically, okay, tell me how you felt after that meal in terms of satiety, energy, and everything. And almost to a fault, people will say, oh yeah, I mean, I wasn't really hungry after that meal until, you know, for, 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 for quite a while. And, and if you think about it again, 
if, if food doesn't hold you over, we were meant to, that's another piece of advice, right? The eat a bunch of small little meals. You think about that from an evolutionary perspective. We didn't have the kind of access to food that we have now, even just a couple of hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. So to think that our biology is set up to be eating these small little micro meals throughout the day to stoke mm -hmm. metabolism or whatever the you know, industry line was, to me, that's designed to sell you snack food products. Right. That's not that's not the way our, our biology is set up. And so you hit right on it. You had a, a meal of healthy fats from, from the egg yolk and the cottage cheese. You had some fiber, which, you know, some people debate whether fiber is, is you know, necessary or not, but it can certainly help fill you up. You had some micronutrients from the salads. You had a ton of other micronutrients in the egg yolk, and you had some great proteins from the egg white and the cottage cheese. Mm -hmm. So you you hit the mark in terms of macro and micronutrients. And to me, it's not calories that fill up the body. It's it's the nutrients that fill up the body. So when we mm -hmm. when we hit the right amount of nutrients, and the body has what it needs to run all of its metabolic processes it doesn't need to give you the drive to continue to eat anymore. That's the whole thing. The, the satiety is, is, an, is an indication that you've had enough of the nutrients that the body needs to run all the processes. And if you're still hungry, chances are it's because you ate a calorically rich but nutrient-poor food, and the body is still searching for the nutrients it needs to do its job because, again, calories are nothing without the, without the micro and macronutrients right. that are um, encompassed in the calories. I don't think people understand really what calories are because everybody that goes on a diet, all they're looking at is the calorie numbers. Right. Like even I, I know people that try to do the the intermittent fasting, which I think is great. I've done it, and I've lost. I think in like three weeks, I lost like ten pounds when I was doing it, hmm. and it just makes me not feel like junk in the mornings. It makes me feel a little bit more refreshed. But I get people that do that, and then they're like, "Well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to eat." like less than a thousand calories and that should it's just like it's calories are not like people focus on like it's just they they very generalize calories like all calories are bad for you too much calories is bad for you but calories is energy you need energy right. to burn the food that you're putting in your body and so when you get people that are like well i'm gonna eat less than 500 calories today and that's how i'm gonna lose weight it's like that that's not how this works you need to focus on what calories you're putting in your body not the amount of calories. I mean, obviously, there's an extent of the amount of calories, uh, but but still, they they're focusing on the number rather than the content. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think calories certainly matter in the equation. It's just that we 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 can't consider that to be the entire you know the entire puzzle. There there, there are so many more things. Like I said, 100 calories of of a donut is totally different than 100 calories of a steak in terms of. Right. I mean, everything. Mm -hmm, so, right. you know, you, you can, and, and the other thing is that's unsustainable. I mean, mm -hmm. how, sh show me what that looks like 500 calories a day. How long can you do that? You, right, eventually right. you will, you will go crazy. I, I know people who try to do that and it becomes problematic. Eventually, if, if you're going to do intermittent fasting, which I am a huge fan of and have been doing mm -hmm. it myself since 2014. So, you know, I was sort of ahead of the, you know, the popularity of it, but I never, I also, I'm very careful to make sure that my meals uh, are incredibly nutrient dense. You you, mm -hmm. you cannot intermittent fast and then think that you're going to get away with just again a bowl of cereal. You know uh, you right. will lose weight in the short term. There's no doubt. Yeah. But most likely you will gain it back because that's completely unsustainable. Mm -hmm. But intermittent fasting is great when you're eating real whole nutrient dense foods. 
you don't really feel hungry, you eat within your window. And that is something that is sustainable. I mean, I, again, I've been doing it for, you know, since 2014 now, and I know people who have been doing it for over a decade. Yeah. Um, and, and there are various forms of intermittent fasting. There's not one size fits all, but it, but it, it clearly works when you worry about the quality rather than just the quantity. You had mentioned that, uh, you know, one of the things they tell us is to eat a lot of small meals. Another thing I know that they talk about a lot is uh, eating a big breakfast. And I, I've never been a breakfast person. I don't like to eat breakfast, but it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I should probably eat something. I, where I'd rather just eat a protein bar and drink a bottle of water and be good to go till lunchtime. So wh- where does that come from? Is like, breakfast the most important meal Yes, today? and do you have to eat a big one? <laughs> <laughs> Well, here we go again. Uh, it always seems to boil down to industry, but um, I, you know, I breakfast being the most important meal of the day is a fallacy. I mean, I think it, I think it's I think it's again driven by cereal manufacturers and people who want you to eat breakfast foods. I would say, and I'm not trying to play a word game. I would say that break fast is the most important meal of the day. Mm-hmm. Whatever meal you choose to break your overnight fast with is the most important meal because your body is primed assuming that you've, even if you're not intermittent fasting, you've just slept for eight hours and you're you're just roughly eight hours fasted, right? People don't realize that they fast every day. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, so say you're just, you're just eight hours fasted. Your body is, is relatively speaking primed for nutrients. Mm -hmm. It it, it needs some things. It needs some nutrients to, to run processes, you know? And so that meal is the most important meal, which is why I tell people, generally speaking, I love to start the day off. I don't eat breakfast either, by the way. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, uh, important to eat at a certain time. I, again, I just think it's the, the time you choose, you want to prioritize things like fat and protein okay. because there are essential amino acids, there are essential fatty acids, there are no essential carbohydrates. And I know people go crazy when I say that, but again, the biochemistry tells us the body does not need carbohydrates ingested. It, it can live without them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there are diets that were used in the 1920s to help kids with epilepsy. It's today, it's just called the keto diet to be, you know, fashionable. But a ketogenic state is a physiological state that was developed back then because it mimics fasting, it mimics starvation, and that was one of the only things that could keep these children from having seizures. So it was actually used as a therapy back in the 1920s. Really? So it's a it's a it's an evolutionarily conserved mechanism. It's not. It's not a fad, despite how many celebrities use it for weight loss, because it can be beneficial for that, but it has a lot of other amazing uh, qualities. Um, but I, I focus on the, the the macro and micronutrients that the body needs and that are essential for a, for a break fast. Um, yeah. And sometimes for me, that's not until two or three in the afternoon. Hmm. Uh, and that's fine. If you don't feel like breakfast, I tell people all the time, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't force food into the body when it's not you, get, you have to learn to listen to your body. And mm-hmm. I think if it's telling you I'm not interested in food right now, there's a reason and that's totally fine. As long as you're not going to then make bad choices. You know, some people right. will intentionally avoid breakfast, even though they're hungry, because again, they think, oh, I need to avoid calories or if I do that. And that's where a lot of those studies come from. I think that say people that skip breakfast end up gaining more weight. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that may be people who are who want to eat breakfast, but are skipping it because they think they can hold out. And then they end up binging in the afternoon, in the evening. Yeah, right. that that's going to lead to problems. But mm-hmm. if you are naturally not a breakfast person, like I wasn't, my mother had to force me to eat breakfast before I would go to school in the morning and I hated every minute of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're not a naturally you know, hungry person in the morning yeah. eating breakfast, uh, it's no problem to wait till later in the day. Just plan it so that you, you when you do break that fast, it's really with, with a good quality, uh, you know, whole foods and something that's going to keep you full uh, until your next meal. Okay. Now um, we've talked a couple times, we brought up, <clears throat> excuse me, Intermittent fasting. Can you just 
for people that don't know what that is, just real briefly tell tell us what that is, how how that works, and how it it's beneficial to the body. I mean, we I obviously we could do a probably a whole hour on intermittent fasting, but just <laughs> just just uh, a quick overview of what that is, so people know what that is. Sure. It's, it's, I mean, it's really exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's essentially taking time away from food and you can do it in a few different ways. You can either restrict, uh, uh, restrict the eating window. So you can say, I'm going to eat all my food within an eight hour window. So say everything you eat is between noon and 8 PM or, mm. or 10 and 6 PM. And other than that, outside of that window, you're just fasting. So you can consume water. You can consume anything non-caloric, green tea, black coffee, something like that. Um, uh, you know, so so that's one way to do it. You can also do things like uh, fasting in alternate day form. So you can eat a normal meal schedule one day and then completely take the next day off from food. Okay. And you can do that alternate day fasting. You can do five two fasting. You can eat five days a week and you can fast for two days a week. So there's a million different uh, versions of fasting. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one of the beauties of it. Actually, I tell people, you know, you, you can find something that actually fits into your life. And so you can, you can kind of wedge fasting into your life rather than trying to force some unnatural diet into your life. Um, it's, it's a, it requires a lot less work and it's a lot cheaper to fast. Um, and the benefits are, I mean, yeah, you're right. We could do a whole podcast. One of my favorite benefits, I think, is the mental clarity. Um, generally, when you're fasting, the body is generating these things called ketones, which is why uh, they call it a ketogenic diet. And the brain um, can use ketones as a fuel source. And in some cases, a lot of research shows that these fuels are actually a cleaner burning fuel. And sometimes you can get uh, you can get sort of a um, euphoric feeling hmm. from ketones. A lot of people who enter a ketogenic state, uh, uh, they they say things like, um, it's almost like I had like a light switch flipped on. You know, they lose the they, they lose the brain fog and they just sort of are more alert. I, I have that same experience whenever I'm doing something really important, like taking an exam or something, I'll generally do that in a fasted state um, so that I can get the ketones pumping and I feel uh, a lot more cognitively aware. Um, one of the other benefits that I think is extremely important in today's society is that it gives the GI tract a rest. Mm -hmm. It gives your digestive system a chance to clean itself out. Mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a process in the digestive tract called the migrating motor complex, the MMC. And it is actually, think of it like the, the cleanup crew at a hotel but it only really kicks in during the fasted state. Okay. And it actually cleans out debris and it helps, you know, helps keep the, the lower GI tract um, and, uh, you know, running optimally the cells in the actual small intestine turn over every two to three days. So the, these fasting states um, upregulate a lot of these physiological processes that, that really do benefit us in a, in a healthy way. We've just lost touch with them again because we live in a, a food environment that is unlike any other time in human history and our biology has just not evolved fast enough to be able to keep up with it. I think mine would be more like cleaning up after a college party. <laughs> like, oh, what? Who does that? Even more reason to do the, uh, the, the intermittent fasting. Well, like, like I said, um, when I was doing it, I just didn't feel like junk in the morning as much. Like I, I just felt less like groggy less of that like gut junk mm -hmm. like where you just feel like gross mm -hmm. um and i mean i i don't think i really cut too much out of like the junk and stuff i was just doing the intermittent fasting and that without even adding like the whole foods and stuff that, that alone made me feel like probably a uh, hundred percent better just from um 
I, I did feel like that jump start every morning. And it's interesting that you say that you take tests in a, uh, a fasting state because it, it's better for your brain. But the whole um, breakfast, the most important meal of the day, they, they tell you to feed your kids breakfast because it's going to keep their brains moving through school and stuff. So it's interesting how you're saying it's basically exactly opposite of what they're telling us. Yeah, I mean, and kids can be a little bit different. I'm, I'm not sure that I would advocate for any kind of longer term fasting mm -hmm. for children because they're rapidly growing and they have nutritional needs. And and so, you know, I, I wouldn't, uh, but, but I think it's also important what you're feeding your kids. I would say that, you know, I'm not sure that feeding your kid, you know, Cocoa Puffs is, is gonna, is gonna, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that that's gonna help them do well on their math test. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but right. I think giving, a, you know, giving a kid some scrambled eggs with some avocado and some, you know, ground, you know, grass fed ground beef or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, or even like, you know, overnight organic steel cut oats with, you know, like things like that. Sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But we don't really eat breakfast the way we once did. Mm -hmm. We eat breakfast in these packaged forms. That's incredibly convenient, which generally means very low nutrient density. And so I, I'm, I would say that if we're going to feed our kids breakfast before school and expect that it's going to have an impact on their performance, we better, we better think about what we're feeding the kids and not just by virtue of having breakfast, you will therefore perform better. You know, I think right. we, uh, I think we have to really analyze what we're feeding um, the child before we send them off uh, to school. Now, Jay, um, you had talked about the, well, we had talked about like the bliss point and how it hijacks your palate and, and basically like the way you look at food. Is there a way to reset that? Is fasting the way to reset your palate like that? Fasting definitely helps. I'll tell you, uh, the, the longest fast I've ever done is five days. And oh, wow. it, it when I tell you that I didn't want junk food, I didn't want Doritos, I didn't want any of that stuff. All I wanted was like the biggest, juiciest steak and vegetables I, you know, I could find. Like I, I was envisioning something like that. So, so that's one of those things that that fasting does as well. It, it it gives you a new respect for real food. I think your I think your body then is at, at that point starving for nutrients, and maybe there's some innate intelligence in the body that knows it's not going to get it from a pop tart, you know. So I think I think that, and also just consistency with whole foods. You, the one thing I've also experienced, and I've heard from countless people, is that your taste will change. Things that you once found sweet will now become sickly sweet and things that you never thought were sweet will all of a sudden become a dessert. Like I could have, I could have a spoonful of almond butter and a 90% dark chocolate piece of dark chocolate. And, and that is a dessert to me because my taste buds have completely rearranged from when I was younger. Yeah. When I used to think that Hershey's special dark, which is like 55% dark, I used to think that was disgusting and bitter. Now, if I was to have that, I'm sure it will be sickly sweet because my taste buds have just reset over the years. And I don't know if there's any research on how long it takes. What I would just tell people is the more consistent you can be with uh, with just real whole foods, the quicker you're going to see that 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 changeover, and all of a sudden you'll start to look at a birthday cake. And it, like if I had, I think I had a piece of my nephew's birthday cake, maybe like six months ago or something, and I just I just took a little piece, and I couldn't believe, couldn't believe how much I couldn't handle it. It was it was huh. it was like overly sweet. And I just had to kind of you know smile through it and. It's great, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so there's 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 no real, and it's always different for everybody. It's like ketosis. You some people get into a ketogenic state uh, w within a couple of weeks of carbohydrate restriction, and some people it takes a couple of months. So I think it's very individual, but consistency is the key there. 
I want to kind of switch courses a little bit here because I got quite a few other things to talk about. Um, one of the things I wanted to really get into, you, and you briefly mentioned it, and we talked a little bit about it, was um, um, all these different ailments that are becoming more and more prominent these days. When one, obviously, diabetes. Um, then there also, like, I, I personally know people that have all of these. So there's diabetes, um, uh, Allergic reactions to gluten or like adverse reactions to gluten, that's that's becoming like a huge thing in the last within the last five years. I'd never heard of it yeah. before like pre well, six, seven years ago. And now I yeah. know like several people that have it. And then also like thyroid disease that uh, that's getting pretty prominent, yeah. too. Yeah, because when I, I was a kid, you know, I grew up during the 80s and it didn't seem like there was a lot of food allergies. And now it seems like every other kid has a food allergy. Mm-hmm. Boy. You guys are opening a whole can of worms. Uh, so certainly not settled. None of this is settled. None of this is fully, completely understood. But there is, I'll give you some anecdotal evidence, and, and I'll go back to one of my favorite people, pr- probably everybody in the health space, you know, one of their favorite people is Hippocrates, right? Okay. He, he said famously, all disease begins in the gut. And that was, you know, B.C., so that was quite, that was quite a wow. while ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, this was before we even knew about the microbiome. So the man was was way know, ahead of his uh, time. Ahead of his time is not even. It doesn't even do him justice. <laughs> um, and just another fun fact: Do you have any idea how old Hippocrates Hippocrates was when he died? Now, keep in mind the life expectancy at that time was anywhere between like 35, 40 years old. Do you have any idea he, how old he was when he died? I don't know. You're the history buff. Do you know? No, in his seventies. He was 90. Wow. Holy crap. Wow. And this I mean, to live to 90 back then is, I mean, yeah. to, to live to, to 90 now is an accomplishment, but to yeah. live to 90 BC. Yeah. <laughs> he was doing something so, right. It was, uh, exactly. Drinking the red wine or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll use that point of the gut. I think, you know, you mentioned thyroid, you mentioned uh, gluten sensitivity. Um, uh, you know, I, almost all of those from my perspective, um, begins. So I was always trained as a nutritional therapist. I was trained to start looking at foundational elements and digestion became quickly became my favorite foundational element because I always say there's nothing North of digestion, mm-hmm. right? If you were to get, if you were to get the perfect diet handed to you in, you know, inscribed on stone tablets from Zeus, <laughs> right? <laughs> from Mount Olympus. And he said, here you go. This is the diet that's tailored for you. But your digestion was not hundred percent, it wouldn't make a difference if that was the perfect diet for you. Oh, You're not right. absorbing those nutrients. We are not the food that we put in our mouths. We are the food that we absorb in a very complex process that requires enzymes and other organ systems working in tandem. And you, you can't even imagine the complexity of digestion. It was one of my favorite things to study in school. I mean, talk about super nerd. I mean, when we got into like anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology and biochemistry, and we were going through digestion, it was actually enjoyable reading for me. I just mm. thought the process of the body was just fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you when you take things like uh, modern food processing techniques, so I'll use just one chemical of thousands of agrochemicals. We'll use one of the most famous ones because people probably know it, and it's in the news a lot in, in lawsuits, is glyphosate. It's okay. the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. Okay. So- Since 1974, we've used about 1.6 billion kilograms of glyphosate. Mm, Holy cow. And and this is on our food, by the way. So, you know, more than any other pesticide, we have used this chemical. And the industry has told us that this is not harmful to humans. 
And technically, uh, you could say they're they were correct. It's not it's not it's not directly uh, harmful to humans, although that still is up for debate. But I'll even just say to be kind to the industry. It's not directly dangerous to them, but it does interrupt a very specific amino acid synthesis pathway that bacteria and plants possess called the shikimate pathway. Okay. So when you think about what's in the gut, the microbiome, which actually outnumbers us in terms of cells, we are more bacteria than we are human, hmm. which is another interesting thing to think about. Yeah, really. Mm -hmm. if, you're if you're interrupting that pathway in these gut bacteria, you are, you are causing just absolutely unforeseen downstream consequences. You, you, you can't have any way of knowing what microbiome disruption could cause. Although we know with some diseases that when we do things like um, fecal microbial transplants, we see improvements in things like ADHD and in other brain issues. So there's a gut brain connection and there is a gut connection to almost every kind of autoimmune and chronic disease. There's very little... Uh, there, there are very few times you can go and look and research a disease and not find some kind of a gut microbiome connection because our understanding of the gut microbiome is relatively still very young. Mm -hmm. We're still, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we thought the gut was sterile, um, which is definitely not the case. <laughs> so when I look at somebody like who has a thyroid disease, Hashimoto's, um, which is under is, is the autoimmune component of a underfunctioning thyroid that's it's called Hashimoto's disease. Um, one of the first things I do is look at is look at a, a leaky gut. That's a term that maybe people have heard before, but you know, leaky gut is essentially uh, like a more scientific term would be gut permeability, which I think probably explains it, right? Like the 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 tight junctions in the in the small intestine that are designed to open up to allow nutrients into the bloodstream and then close back up, um, they become leaky. So they literally become loose and they allow particles into the bloodstream huh. that are not supposed to be there. And so we have this amazing uh, adaptive and innate immune system that sees these things that are not, they should have been digested, again, in an intact and proper human digestive tract that would have been broken down into their constituents, absorbed properly, and then metabolized in a, in a variety of ways. But when the gut becomes leaky, these, these proteins that are too big, these, these molecules that are too big and unrecognizable now become seen as foreign invaders to the immune system. So the immune system attacks them. And through a process known as molecular mimicry, uh, very often the thyroid seems to be the target that some of those antibodies that get built up against these particles that leak into the bloodstream look similar enough. So the body is very good at distinguishing self from non-self, but it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it wages war against our own organs and the thyroid seems to be the, the point of attack for a lot of those issues. And so a lot of people have, one of the first things they develop is a thyroid, uh, hypothyroidism when they have a leaky gut. So one of the first things I do with those people is try to address gut issues and um, create, try to, try to create some homeostasis in the gut. And, and a lot of times you'll see if they have antibodies in the blood work to the thyroid, a lot of times you'll see them start to calm down a little bit and the body's, the immune system is starting to relax a little bit. And depending on how long you've had it, it's, it is reversible. Um, it's harder the longer you've had it, but, but I know, um, I know people who have reversed Hashimoto's by dealing directly with their gut. Yeah. Hmm. Uh that was my next question, and that this pertains to any of these, um, whether it's gluten or I don't even know if you call it an allergy, but like sensitivity or thyroid issues or uh, um, any uh, autoimmune disease that came from 
introducing this foreign stuff in your body um how how often is it that it's reversible and like how far into it until it's not reversible like obviously if you uh don't put oil in your car for a long long enough time the the effects become irreversible so if you're I mean, obviously, there's a point. If you keep introducing this stuff into your body, your body's going to eventually say, no, uh, we're not turning around. But how do you uh, reverse some of those things? Um, uh, And does that apply to diabetes? Does that apply to also, uh, like, um, the gluten allergies and stuff like that? Or is that specific to, like, the autoimmune disease? I think... I mean, I think everything is is reversible depending on the person and depending on the degree and, and obviously depending on the genetics and also depending on the environment. You know, mm-hmm. how willing is somebody to remove these things? I know a lot of people who <laughs> they know they shouldn't be eating, you know, gluten. They know they shouldn't, sure. you know, I know some people who have celiac disease who still refuse to give up, you know, pizza and they just deal with the consequences. But I don't think they fully understand how serious some of these diseases are because they can cause malabsorption, which can cause nutrient deficiencies, which can lead to all kinds of other cause your downstream organs to shut down. So, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, it, so it's really, um, it's really hard. You know, people again, people are really um, addicted to the foods that they love, and they are unwilling, even at the expense of their own health. I've seen people say, "Look, I'm, I mean, I'm willing to have this disease if it means I don't have to give up this." And to me. That's a foreign concept. Right. I don't understand that. I, you know, but again, I have to respect everybody where they are in their health journey. And some people aren't willing to make those changes. Type two diabetes. This is a little bit controversial, but I'll just say I think is almost entirely lifestyle driven. Is almost entirely lifestyle mm-hmm. reversible. Mm-hmm. Um, now there is a point where beta cell function. So the beta cells are in the pancreas. The pancreas is what secretes insulin into the bloodstream to help lower blood glucose or blood sugar, <clears throat> and um, uncontrolled blood sugar is generally a hallmark of diabetes. So just to make that connection. So that's where the the beta cells start to pump out so much insulin because blood sugar becomes uncontrollable. Um, And they can eventually sort of, I'll use the term burnout, even though the truth is they never actually burn out. They just become extremely fatigued, I guess you could use Mm -hmm. that term. Sure. So there is, there is a way to, um, you know, you know, I, I generally will put somebody like that on a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet um, because it it minimizes the need for insulin because you're not really consuming any appreciable amount of carbohydrates which turn into um, you know simple sugars in the blood and so therefore the pancreas and the beta cells don't have to do as much work and that can often allow them the opportunity to regenerate. Um, they may always be uh, they may always be th- that person may always be sensitive to sugar and they may have they may never be able to go back to what got them there in the first place. But I would argue. Why would you want to go back to what got you there in the first place? Yeah, that was what so, uh, I was going to ask. Um, somebody comes to you and says, hey, I diagnosed type 2 diabetic or I've had it for X amount of years and nothing's working. Um, what do I need to do? You give them this this diet plan, this um, exercise plan, whatever it is. What else do you got? <laughs> and what? No, then, then their numbers get back down. Do you see people going back to that or for the most part, do they are it does it click with them and they're like, uh wow, this really worked. I need to stick with this. Or are they like, okay, I'm good now. I'm going to go back to the way I was. Well, now you're getting into the psychology of it, right? I mean, if, if most people are very grateful when they reverse a disease that most people come to me and say they've had type two diabetes runs in their family, which Mm -hmm. I say most likely a poor lifestyle and poor diet run in your family. And I don't mean that to be, 
I'm not being disrespectful or flippant. I'm, I'm being totally honest because that's what, yeah. that's why people come to me. Mm -hmm. I'm honest with you. I'm not going to sugarcoat things. <laughs> no pun intended. I mean, you're literally, <laughs> you know, what, what got you here is probably people telling you what you want to hear your mm -hmm. entire life. So the one thing I'm not going to do is to tell you all the things you want to hear and that you can continue to eat X, Y, and Z and will somehow magically get you better because I'll be able to give you a handful of supplements. That's practicing green medicine. That's what the pharmaceutical companies right. do. They hand you out a pill and they pretend like managing a symptom is fixing the root cause of a disease, which it is not. Mm -hmm. And so as a functional medical practitioner, I don't, I don't, view supplements that way. They, they can be used and they can be very helpful in a type 2 diabetes situation. Like I might use something like chromium, which can help increase um, insulin secretion, can help restore beta cell function. So it's very, it's very useful in that way. But I would never give somebody chromium and then say, okay, you know, keep eating your Boston cream donut for breakfast. And right. you're, you know, I mean, that's insane. Again, mm. that's just, that's just throwing gasoline on a fire and hoping that you know, hoping that a squirt gun is going to, uh, is going to put it out. Right. So I think, um, I think it's up to the individual. And I, again, I have to, I can't make anybody do anything. Um, I just tell people, you know, you can see the, the, the long-term effects of diabetes and it usually ends with things like amputations and blindness and just horrible, horrible things that I can't imagine anybody would want to live with. So right. if anyone has seen that, that progression, um, they would be smart to sort of want to halt it as soon as possible. Yeah, Jay, I used to um, have really bad acid reflux. I mean, I used to drink Mountain Dew like it was going out of style, and it would hit so bad. I would, I mean, it would burn so bad I would force myself to throw up like every night so that I, I wouldn't feel the burning sensation. Wow. Um, and so, but then a couple years ago, you know, I, I ended up losing quite a bit of weight, and I started drinking a lot more water. Now I'll have a Mountain Dew maybe once or twice a week, but not like it was. And, um, and I haven't had acid reflux since. So then incredible. Yeah. So, yeah. um, being somebody without diabetes, I, I, it sounds like that's one that's easy to reverse. Yeah. You just stop eating sugar. Obviously people who have, it, it's like, it's easier said than done. I mean, it's hard for me to cut out sugar myself. Yeah. Um, but so that one, somebody comes to you, obviously your, your go-to is cut out the carbs, cut out the sugar and rebalance your insulin levels and stuff. What if, I mean, how often have you had somebody with more of a like autoimmune disease come to you and how, like, what's your advice to somebody with like an autoimmune disease or thyroid disease? Because that, that seems like it's harder to pin down than diabetes. And I would think that being said, it'd be harder to, um, to treat or to, reverse than diabetes because i know somebody that had both thyroid disease and autoimmune disease and it took years for them to even figure out what i don't even know if they've even really discovered what the disease is they just know they have some sort of autoimmune disease so when somebody comes to you and says hey i've got this uh what do i need to do what what's your advice for them yeah that's much it's autoimmune is incredibly complicated um but again I always start with digestion in the gut and it usually ends well for people. So, but that's different for everybody because the first thing you need to do is remove. That's always the sort of first step in the like four R protocol is remove. So we need to, the, the gut is, uh, it's only one cell layer thick. Think about that. Mm. One cell wow. layer separates you from the outside world. It mm. is, it is incredibly delicate. And so we have to take care of it. And so, um, chronic exposure to some kind of a toxin, whether it's glyphosate on food, whether it's an environmental toxin, you know, whether it's lead paint, whether it's, you're living in an area with air pollution and you're, you know, or you're living, you know, on top of an automotive, 
uh, repair shop and you're and you're breathing in you know diesel fumes all day i need to find the environmental the the, the physical chemical or emotional even uh, because stress can actually cause leaky gut as well mm -hmm. so we need to examine all aspects of a lifestyle so i really need to get like a full history on somebody i need to know you know if they live in, in an abusive relationship maybe they have the maybe they have the cleanest lifestyle the cleanest diet they exercise they do all these amazing things but they are a chronic ball of stress because they're living with an abusive spouse or they live with their parents who drive them crazy and they're just in this heightened sympathetic dominant state where their adrenals are just pumping out cortisol constantly and they just can't calm down and so that kind of a state if you're trying to eat in that kind of a state so so digestion happens in a parasympathetic state mm -hmm. and and stress is a is a sympathetic dominant state. Those two things are not compatible. So if you're trying to eat in a sympathetic state, your entire digestive process is completely shut down. You think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? So again, from ancestral uh, from the ancestral lens, if you're being chased by a saber toothed tiger, you don't need to worry about the bagel that you just ate being digested <laughs> properly. All you know, your your body is guns blazing, and the blood is going to the extremities, and your you know your pupils you know, dilate and you are just ready to go. You know, you are ready for anything. So the body has not really developed any other stress mechanisms. Like the, the thing that saved us from the saber toothed tiger, it doesn't know the difference between that and your boss hammering you every day at work. And I hate my job and I hate my life and I'm mm. miserable. And so, so stress is such an underplayed part of health, specifically gut health. So, you know, I really do have to look at somebody holistically to see where those insults are coming from and then we have to do our best to remove them so very often i'll strip somebody's diet down to something that's akin to an elimination diet where they're pretty much just eating you know meat um you know i might even remove eggs if i think they're a trigger you know i need to i need mm -hmm. to sometimes i can do uh you can do a what's called a, an igg food sensitivity panel um it's not perfect but it, if someone's struggling you can at least get an idea of you know, foods that may be triggering them and you might want to remove those. Um, you can do blood work and look at inflammatory markers to see, you know, what's going on there. I'll often look at somebody's, again, look at the food they have in their cabinets. You know, we got to do a cabinet purge. We got to remove all those seed oils because those suckers are inflammatory mm -hmm. and nobody wants inflammation in their gut. That's not going to be good for the gut lining. Mm -hmm. So it's a multifactorial process. And then after that, I'll usually include digestive support. So digestive enzymes, things that can help replace what the body's not producing on its own at first in order to help break down those foods because it's like a vicious cycle. If you're not breaking down the foods and getting the adequate nutrients, your body can't rebuild itself. So now we need to add in those things so that those foods can be digested, those micronutrients can be extracted, and the body can then start to use those things to rebuild cells and to repair itself, right? So uh, yeah, so it's a really a multifactorial process. And then I'll include things like maybe down the road, I'll include things like probiotics from sauerkraut or yogurt and, and things like that. I'm not a big fan of using probiotic supplements. I think I like them coming from whole foods more. Um, and uh, if somebody reacts to a probiotic food, then chances are that tells me the gut's not quite ready yet. It's like throwing fertilizer on a lawn full of dandelions. You know, you're going to make the good guys grow, but you're also going to make all the, mm. you know, all the, <laughs> all the crazy, uh, you know, bad bacteria grow as well. So right. it might not be ready for it at the time. We want to wait a little bit longer and, and hold off, but that's sort of the process. It's a lot of removal, digestive support, and then some re-inoculation down the road. So uh, we're about due for our break. Uh, are you? Do you have time to spend the next half with us too? 
another 45 sure. minutes or so. Um, I have a few Let's questions. I had reached out on social media to ask if anybody had questions for a nutritional therapist. And so I wanted to ask a couple of these briefly before we get into a break. Um, the first one is from Michelle. It says, how do you know what your body's deficient of? Because you talk about your body being deficient of things and that cause leads to a lot of these ailments. How do you know which uh, nutrients your body is deficient of? Well, I mean, I think the best thing to do there is to test, you know, there are a lot of blood tests that are good, um, you know, standard blood tests that you get from a doctor, like a vitamin D test. Um, you can get things like red blood cell magnesium. That's another uh, mineral that most people are deficient in. And then there are functional lab markers that can tell you about B12 or folate or, you know, so uh, uh, CoQ10 or other antioxidant, um, uh, antioxidants. So, so I would, I would look at a full blood panel. I would also, in a perfect world, order some some functional medical uh, blood testing as well, and just try to get a feel for a person's diet. Because if I know what someone's eating, I, I have a I have a pretty good idea. Like you know, not not to pick on vegans or vegetarians, but generally speaking, vegan and vegetarian diets come with a very <laughs> specific set of of micronutrient deficiencies. Iron, B twelve, these are very common deficiencies mm -hmm. in those type of diets. So I would analyze the whole person, utilize some blood work. Um, if you have a good functional medical doctor, they'll run a lot of those those blood tests for you that for, for the major deficiencies and, and the ones that have the greatest impact, you know, zinc is another one. So, um, yeah, th those are, those are the ways that I would do it. I want to, I would want to objectively measure rather than just guess and start supplementing to the mm. whole bunch of things that the body really doesn't need. That's not, that's not really precision medicine. Now, Paul asks, um, and I don't know if there's an actual answer to this, but, um, Paul asks which, which vitamin is most important of all the vitamins? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think there is an answer. I mean, they all work synergistically. Like the B vitamins are the perfect example. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you if you go too hard on one B vitamin, you're going to throw off. You know, I mean, I think of all the. I, I go back to biochemistry, and I think of all like the conversion of even just a glucose molecule into energy requires B one, two, three, and five, and lipoic mm -hmm. acid. So like. You're you're talking about the entire B spectrum almost for you know to to convert glucose into energy. So mm -hmm. um, there's really no and, and vitamin C help is an antioxidant which also helps in collagen production. So um, and vitamin D is might as well be a hormone. It runs about 300 different reactions in the body. Mm. So sorry, almost 500 different reactions oh, wow. in the body. So uh, there's just no yeah there's no there's no good answer to that one. I would say that they're they're all those vitamins are there for a reason. You really shouldn't be deficient in any of them all of them um, again, all of them is the most important uh, adding on to that are multivitamins legit i mean are is there something you should look for in a multivitamin or are they kind of a scam some of them are definitely a scam and okay. a lot of them use cheap and not uh they use the wrong forms of the vitamins you know they, they'll use synthetic b vitamins and um synthetic E, you know, vitamin E, and I'm not sure the body can use them. And there's some evidence that they could actually be detrimental. Will they, say, that on the, will they say synthetic B or synthetic E, or you just got to No, okay. no, it'll be the, it'll be like the sort of biochemical name when mm. you'll have to decipher that, you know, like a, sure. a, a B vitamin may use cyanocobalamin instead of methylcobalamin, which is the, which is the, the word for, you know, for, for B12. And okay. so it can get, or like vitamin E would be the synthetic version would be DL alpha tocopherol instead of, uh, instead of alpha tocopherol so you know you have to kind of know the you have to kind of know the terminology going in and but some are good from from whole food forms 
Um, I would only recommend them in specific cases where people maybe had maldigestion or had bariatric surgery and they just really have now a compromised digestive system and they, they need the multivitamin support. But in general, I don't, I wouldn't just like mass supplement with them. I don't, I don't think that's yeah. necessary if you're, if you're eating a proper diet. I, I'm, I'm not very good at eating fruit. <laughs> I, I don't like fruit. So I, bananas. I can't stand bananas. Um, so I tend to take a multivitamin, try to supplement some of that. Yeah. So that's why I ask. Well, staying. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I mean, if you're not if you're not eating those foods and 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 the and it's a good quality vitamin, there's certainly nothing nothing wrong with taking a multivitamin. You just have to make sure that you're getting a, a high quality one. Okay. Uh, last one for now. Staying on topic with vitamins, uh, Stephanie asks: Is it better to start repairing the body by adding necessary vitamins and minerals, or by fasting or detoxing? <clears throat> Can I say both? I was going to say, I, I assume you're probably going to say both on that one. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any, I mean, there are, there's a clinic up in Toronto that's doing amazing work reversing type two diabetes with just fasting. Like, like you had said, they're not actually, they're not actually changing the person's diet at first if they don't want to. So they're continuing to eat a junk diet, essentially that got them type two diabetic, but mm -hmm. fasting alone, pretty aggressive fasting, but fasting alone is able to reverse some of that. But but remember, fasting breaks down. Fasting is a catabolic process. So you still need to combine that with an anabolic process, which is eating and providing your body with nutrients. So I would say really you can't have one without the other because you can't fast indefinitely. And fasting isn't going to replace nutrients. It's only going to help the body to recycle older cells, upregulate things like uh, cellular autophagy, which cleans up damaged proteins, but then you still need to replace those with adequate nutrition. So I really do think it's a, it's a team effort there. Okay. One more question. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so I, I, I tend to lift heavy, um, but I want to kind of cut. Is it okay to intermittent fast or will I lose muscle or um, what what's the solution for that? It's a great question. I mean, I think intermittent fasting, you'd, you'd have to, there's a certain point where the body will start to catabolize muscle. And there's a question as to whether that's necessarily bad because the first proteins to go will usually be damaged proteins. So those are proteins that you actually want to get rid of. But, but the evidence suggests that, you know, as long as you're fasting short term, if you're just talking intermittent fasting within the day mm -hmm. um, and you're getting adequate calories and adequate protein, then you can still actually build muscle while intermittent fasting. Okay. I actually do that myself because I still yeah. intermittent fast and have still been able to put on and maintain lean muscle, um, even sometimes eating just one meal a day. So, oh, wow. Wow. Well, and I had heard during the interview uh, with quite frankly that you do like a 16 hour fast. That's my, that's my, my average. Uh, but during the week, it's actually closer, like it's closer to the warrior diet, which is sort of like essentially you're eating everything in one sort of really extended window of like four hours. You oh, know? Wow. It's like, I'm just having basically one, like today I had just basically one meal and it went from like two to four, you know? So like, I wasn't, mm -hmm. I was really, you know, I, when I eat, I like chew carefully, you know, make mm -hmm. sure, you know, it's like a really nice relaxed process. It's not just cramming <laughs> things down the gullet, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that's usually my weeks. And then my weekends are more spread out and more casual and I consume more calories on the weekend than I do during the week. It just, it just fits with, with my lifestyle and my, that my, mm. my work schedule and all the things that I need to get done. Well, it is time. It's past time to take a break real quick. Um, uh, we usually take three, four minutes to get something to drink and, uh, bathroom break, bathroom break and all that <laughs> stuff. So, um, I want to come back. I want to kind of switch focuses a little and talk more about like the, the corporate side of, 
um, health and nutrition and food and pharmaceuticals and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the stuff we kind of like to talk about how the, the government and corporations tend to hijack our lives and stuff. So I, I know you got plenty to say about that because I've heard just bits and pieces. I'm like, I, I want to hear more about that. So um, if, if you're up for it, we'll come back and talk a little bit about that if, if you're good with that. that. Sounds good to me. All right. We're going to take a break. Um, when we come back, we're going to continue on this conversation with Jay Guliano. Am I pronouncing that right? Actually, uh, well, yeah, you can either say Gulanello or Gulanello. Gulanello. There you go. Um, all right. I knew you'd cor correct me eventually or just let me keep shoving my foot in my mouth. We're going to take a break and uh, take four or five minutes and make sure you guys come back because I want to get into even more interesting stuff. I mean, this whole first half has been mind-blowing to me, and the second half, I think, is going to continue down that. So um, we'll be right back in just a couple minutes. Have you ever thought that maybe voting, maybe all this politics constantly surrounding you is not the way to achieve freedom in your life? Hi, I'm Remster W. Martinez, and I ask myself the same question. That's why I'm on a journey to find true freedom in my lifetime. From learning about financial independence to new ways to develop rugged individualism to amazing guests living strange, crazy, amazing lifestyles that you've only thought might be real but actually are. Go ahead and check out my new show, On the Run with Rumsfeld W. Martinez at the We Are Libertarians Network. You can find On the Run with Rumsfeld W. Martinez on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. You know how the internet works. Come on down and let's discover how to achieve real freedom in your life together. Hey, everybody. I just want to take this time to give a big shout out to the very first sponsor of the Break the Bell podcast. That is Goulash Media. They can be found at goulashmedia.net. Uh, Goulash Media specializes in graphic design, web design, audio recordings, video work, wedding videos, uh, music videos, even political campaign videos. Uh, Goulash Me Media caters to the little guy with the big vision. You can check them out at goulashmedia.net. That's G-O-U-L-A-S-H media.net. everybody we are back with jay gulanello he is a uh, nutritional therapist and he's been talking a lot about uh taking control of your health how to uh manage your own health through nutritional practices rather than pharmaceutical practices and even the potential of uh reversing certain ailments that are becoming more and more prominent today such as like autoimmune diseases and uh uh, diabetes and stuff like that, which is, um, I know somebody with all those things we talked about, yeah. not like one person, but I know people collectively that have all those ailments, multiples of them. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to hear, um, him talk about all those things. So we are back. I'm going to kill this music and get Jay back up here. Yeah. And I, I just found, uh, perpetual health on Instagram and lots of really good information on there. <laughs> yeah. I was scrolling through J Jay, uh, can you hear us? 
Yes, I can. Yeah, I was scrolling through your Instagram before you came on, and um, a lot of the stuff, I'm just like, man, I want to ask him about that. I want to ask him about that. I want <laughs> All these things I want to ask him about. So yeah. um, real quick, before we get into some of the corporate stuff, um, one of the things I found interesting that you talk about is I, I heard you mention that doctors aren't trained in nutrition, like medical doctors aren't typically trained in nutrition. I found that fascinating to me because I would think, like, like I, I understand that – not everybody's going to ha- be trained in all specialties. Like mm-hmm. um, a cancer doctor is not going to be trained specifically right. like in like childcare and stuff like that. But um, it, to me, it's kind of like electronic engineering. Like everybody has their own specialties, where, whether it be radios or, or um, like TVs or, or whatever electronics. But all of them take basic electronics. <laughs> right. Studies, and I would think the baseline of health and medicine would be nutrition, and I I find it fascinating that those two are separated in today's society. Well, what I'll tell you is that I wish you were writing the curriculum for medical school. Is what I'll tell you. <laughs> Me too. Because, yeah, um, actually, where I studied nutrition um, in grad school, they they were they were tapped by Yale Medical College to create a nutrition program for the med students because. The students actually themselves petitioned it because they knew how powerful this was and they knew that they weren't getting enough of it. I mean, in some cases, doctors tell me that they don't even get a full class. Like they get a couple of weeks of a class in nutrition. Wow. That's insane. And that remember, right. And remember, I worked with doctors at the hospital. So I probably know more doctors than most doctors because all of, my, you know, I had hundreds of clients at the hospital mm-hmm. and they were all medical professionals. And I, I had many doctors sitting in front of me and we would talk biochemistry and it was downright frightening the things they didn't know mm-hmm. so i i don't i don't know the the actually okay i'll speculate i i, I think i do know why that's not um well, that's not taught is it's, it's because it's not profitable mm-hmm. um just gonna... you know medical schools a very long time ago and this is you know, I get in arguments, uh, which I try not to, you know, in the world of uh, social media mm-hmm. and the interwebs, uh, I get in arguments with doctors sometimes about this kind of stuff. And I said, listen, you know, it's not revisionist history. This is this is how things happened. Now, you can take the position that it's a good thing for medicine, that pharmaceutical companies essentially purchased medical colleges, the American Medical Association. Essentially, if you don't practice pharmacological uh medicine, you do not practice medicine with a license in this country Hmm. that didn't used to be this way, but it is now. So, um, and you can argue that that's for the better because it homogenized uh, medical colleges. They all taught the same curriculum. So essentially you churn out this robust amount of non-critically thinking, but very hardworking and great at memorizing physicians who know how to prescribe medication at a certain dose for a certain illness. And again, I, I don't say that with any disrespect. I'm saying that that's just the, those are just the facts on the ground. Mm-hmm. That That's what medicine is. And a few doctors do branch out and they go back to school for nutrition on their own. And many of them now, I have many of them that follow me on Instagram and they are amazing people. And those are the kinds of doctors you want to seek out mm-hmm. because they understand the power of nutrition. We put milligram quantities of pharmaceuticals in our body and they can have dramatic effects. We put kilogram quantities on a daily basis of food. So to think that they're not going to have some kind of physiological effect on the body is just, it's just silliness. Mm -hmm. It's just silliness. 
Well, uh, so yeah, I, I think I think nutrition should be the base uh, of everything, but uh, unfortunately, it's not. You've well, been. I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say what well, the the things you were just mentioning come straight out of the the Flexner report, which is what you talk about in some of your other interviews, and I saw you posting about it on Instagram. Um, explain what that was uh, when you're talking about the homogenization of the medical industry and how how that came to be and what what that exactly was yeah it's a fast actually it was my i actually intentionally did a, a, like a reboot post because i had done one before on this i did it today so that if your audience goes to my instagram pages the post from today from from the 21st of march um so they can read about it and abraham flexner was a was a gentleman that had a bachelor degree in arts um didn't he did go to grad school, but he never finished. Um, and he was essentially a politician, and he was paid by the Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefellers. So, to, Bachelor of Arts, to, you said. B- Bachelor what's of that? Ar- Bachelor of Arts degree, no medical background whatsoever. Correct. That is insane. Correct. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. So, so he wasn't someone that I would say. Well, again, I'm not I'm not a person for censorship. I I despise censorship in all forms. So I would never say he doesn't deserve a voice. I would just say that he shouldn't be the only voice, let's just say. Right. Uh, but essentially that's what he became. He, 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 he went around to medical colleges in the US and I believe Canada, and essentially determined that the curriculum was far too broad. There, was too many, there were too many different modalities being taught. And he felt that things like homeopathy and naturopathic doctors and chiropractic doctors and anybody that practiced you know, anything that was outside of this specific curriculum, which again, if you wanna get into the conspiracy realm, we media do. was we know, absolutely yeah <laughs> that, that it was sort of it was sort of explained to him what he would and wouldn't find and of course he found in favor of what became the, the allopathic pharmaceutical model of medicine essentially then it became if you wanted to have a medical school with all the donations from the rockefellers and the carnegies you wanted to have all the new toys and all the new gadgets you had to subscribe to this version of medical education they want they put a member on every board of every major medical school in the country and that slow process um, basically legislated out what used to be a choice. The patient could choose allopathic medicine or homeopathy not very long ago, 100, 150 years ago. Hmm. And now it's completely different. So so people think, they look around today at the, at the medical world and they just, they think this is the way it always was, but this is actually the experiment. The pharmaceutical model of medicine is actually the experiment. The, wow. the homeopathic Chinese medicine, ancient medicine that's gone back thousands of years, um, that has subsisted the human race for again for 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 in some cases centuries uh but um we've just sort of fallen victim to this corporatocracy i guess and now king dollar uh sort of uh, informs all decisions including medical and it's uh, it's the same thing in nutrition which is why in 2020 when all this stuff happened with everyone's you know favorite virus uh it wasn't really a surprise to me that the things went down this way because the nutrition world is no different than the medical world. Mm-hmm. It comes down to money and there's very little that you can do about it. If, if you're not uh, one of those major players, how do explain, how did, uh, how does somebody like oil conglomerate, the Rockefellers or Carnegie get into the medical profession? How did that come to be? Because they, they're, they're not medical background, are they? No, it was all because, because, because essentially when standard oil was busted, um, when the monopoly was busted uh, by uh, uh, Roosevelt, I believe, um, they he, he basically uh, there. Were, I think there was a German chemist who created the process of the of the petrochemical. And since Rockefeller had plenty of knowledge about 
you know, and, and plenty of money invested in the oil industry. Um, essentially, it was the invention of that petrochemical that gave them the idea, hey, we can invent all kinds of things, pharmaceutically uh, uh, alter them so that they would be patentable, right? So they're, they're all derivatives of, or most of them are derivatives of plant compounds. That's, that's, the, that's the really funny part about all this modern day censorship of natural remedies is that all pharmaceuticals are, most of them are mimicking in some way, some kind of, uh, some kind of compound that's found in nature, in plants or, or, you know, either phytochemical or zoochemical. And those things then just get changed in one way molecularly because it's not legal to patent uh, nature. So they get altered in one small little way. They become a patented medicine. And then that becomes the medicine that is taught in medical schools. And, and before you know it, the Rockefellers, again, who have no medical background, um, come to essentially inform almost every decision your doctor makes about your health. And you think it's evidence-based and you think it's driven by the latest science. And I'm not saying that it's completely evidence-free, but it is it is much more based on corporate interests than it is based on what's best for the patient. That's just the sad truth. So so you talk about um, medicine for profit, pharmacy for profit, and then there's also on the other side, food for profit. And it, I mean, it's hard to bash on corporations without people calling you a communist because, uh, you know, free business and, and stuff like that. And profit's all about capitalism's all about profit. And if you don't support that, then you're obviously a communist. But um, um, when it comes to things like pharmacy and food for profit and these corporations running these things, I, I think uh, when it comes to some of these, it's not good enough for you to make the same profit as you made last year. So it's like every year they're trying to ramp up their profit even more by cutting corners or introducing whatever drug, patented drug and stuff. And at what point do we like crack down on this and say, hey, uh, it's not about freaking making dollars anymore. Um, we want you to actually take care of our health because that's what supposedly the pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies and the food companies are supposed to be about. Yeah. I So I'm very careful to walk that line as well because I, I don't think capitalism is the problem. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think unchecked capitalism is the problem and I think unabashed corporate greed is the problem. And right. I also would say, uh, I would also say that you probably, I don't think you can have pure capitalism in a world where you also don't have an informed public, mm -hmm. right? So if you and I have the ability to know all of the options that are available to us and then we choose the pharmaceutical model, then that, to me, that's much more akin to natural, pure capitalism, right? right. But what, what we have today is the intentional obfuscation of the truth and the censorship of other modalities of health uh, by the food industry, by the pharmaceutical industry. And now, now we're living in something different. And I'm not sure what that is. I'm not sure what the name is. Maybe that's the actual definition of fascism, right? Which is corporate control. But whatever it is, it's not pure capitalism. And so I really, I really push back um, because I do get that argument a lot from people who say, you know, well, what's the problem? You know, these companies are just, are just out to make profit. And I, and I always say, listen, I have no problem with companies making profit. But did you know that Bayer in the 1980s uh, sold knowingly sold, and this is you can look it up. It's in it's in it's in the New York Times. It was in it was published in newspapers. It was a legitimate news story that Bayer had broken the rules when they created a drug. I think it was called Factor Eight. It was a drug created for hemophiliacs, 
And uh, they sourced the blood for this drug from people they weren't supposed to source it from, meaning they went to prisons and oh, wow. and they used they and drug users. And so, of course, this factor eight drug was contaminated with HIV. Yeah. So they couldn't sell it in this country, obviously. So what did they do? They basically did a calculation and said, well, we can sell it in other countries in third world countries, knowing now, remember, they knew that this was tainted with AIDS. They didn't find out after the fact, sorry, tainted with HIV. And they just did a basic calculation. Well, eventually we'll be caught and we'll have to pay X amount of dollars in a fine, but that's going to be less than it would be if we dump this entire product wow. line. We spent wow. all this money, right? So it was a simple, so human lives to some of these pharmaceutical companies, not all of them, but to some of them, human lives are a simple math calculation. So somebody, again, you, you want to tell me that that's pure capitalism? I would, I would argue that those people that died from eventually died from AIDS um, and I don't think they would find that to be pure capitalism. And I think people deserve informed consent. If they wanted to buy a cheap HIV tainted hemophiliac drug, then they should know and they can go ahead and buy it, you know, in good conscience, but none of those people knew. And so this is the, this is the fine line that we're walking right now. And I don't re really even think the line is very fine anymore. No, it's not. How did we get to, I mean, obviously we talked about Rockefellers. We talked about the, um, the Flexner report, but, um, was that the dramatic shift there at that point where we shifted where now it's like hardcore, like essentially poisoning your body a little doses at a time in the name of health, um, healthcare or whatever, instead of introducing, like you were talking about different nutrients and, um, homeopathic remedies or, um, fasting and, and different, uh, nutritional ways. Like at what point did, was that shift where, um, uh, we strayed away from that, that past that actually seem to help a lot more than what these drugs and stuff are doing. Yeah. I mean, so I'll step outside my area of expertise just for a moment and say there, there has to be some kind of cosmological significance of the early 1900s, because a lot of things in society pivoted right in that second, first to second decade of the 1900s. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, 1910 was the Flexner report. Uh, 1911 was the invention of Crisco. Um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these things, the introduction of, uh, you know, the adulteration of the food supply. Uh, so you have these, these dramatic changes to human existence that just had never happened before. Um, and again, you know, 1910, that in, in the grand scheme of things it, to us, it's a long time ago, but, but in terms of evolution and biology, it's the right. blink of an eye. Yeah. And we just we just haven't had a chance to adjust to that. Maybe someday we could adjust, and our bodies would adjust to you know Twinkies. But but I doubt it. And 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 we certainly haven't had the time to be able to do it. So right. I would say that that's that's the to me. I go back to that moment in history. It's like if you're mm. if you're a Back to the Future fan, you know everything revolves around 1955. So I would say that uh, if you're a, if you're a, a a nutrition and medical buff, some something about that time period that 1910 well, time period is where everything shifted yeah and i mean that was i believe that was theodore roosevelt and that's you know when we started our imperialistic spreading out to you know take over the pacific islands and the panama canal and all that good stuff you know it's really when <laughs> the united states freedom. decided to yes yeah, spread our freedom so, um was that i i just asking because i don't know the answer to this was did that happen to be the time of like maybe the advent of some of these more regulatory bodies that could easily be paid off by some of these corporations yes. to put um these healthy stamps like we talked about the american heart association with with cottonseed oil they put their stamp of approval on it well um was that 
during that time where politicians can be paid off to pay off uh, regulatory bodies and, and things like that? Did that, I mean, maybe that's when well, this started to shift like that. Because I think, remember, yeah. um, uh, you know, with the book you learn about in middle school, you know, that uh, Roosevelt had read about the uh, the meat industry, mm. you know, that the meat packing, and that's when he decided to put certain regulations in place for the meat, which I'm sure it's much better than having rat guts in your burger, but... You know, that's when they but, started putting that stuff in. <laughs> but like like we're seeing with like Procter and Gamble, you can pay off those right. regulatory committees pretty easily. So that's the problem, right? I mean, I always tell people, listen, I have I have colleagues that work at the CDC, mm-hmm. but they know that the CDC as an institution is is beyond saving at this point. Right. So it's it's never I, I'm really careful not to cast a wide net on these people because I know that there are good people that work at the American Heart Association. There are mm-hmm. good scientists that work at the American Medical Association, but it's it's something about institutionalized, not just medicine, just institutions in general. It's like w- w- there's like a tipping point when uh w- when a certain amount of people get together, there there just seems to be this shift. And I don't know if just m- the more people you have, the greater chance you have mm-hmm. of of having nefarious, um, you know. Uh, tendencies creep in. I'm not sure what it is, but it seems to happen in every organization. And the American Heart Association being essentially launched by Procter & Gamble is is such a black mark in history. And people don't even realize that these were, this was essentially a, just a few fledgling cardiologists before Procter & Gamble took over. It was a radio contest. I, I wrote about this oh, wow. probably last year um, called Walking Man, I think was the name of the contest. And, and it, it ended up being several million dollars over the course of a few years that turned the AHA from, again, just a couple of cardiologists into this powerhouse that controls, uh, you know, a, a huge portion of, I mean, they just, they just released their new, you know, updated dietary guidelines in, in 15 years, their first, you know, guidelines in 15 years. I don't know what the American Heart Association has to do with dietary guidelines. I mean, I, as far as I know, the people that are doing these guidelines are not nutritionists. Um, but yet here we are, you know, with the same old American Heart Association guidelines, reduce your salt intake, reduce your, you know, your animal saturated fat intake. It's the same old guidelines, just mm. repackaged either from a pyramid to a plate or what, you know, how the USDA does it, or it's just the same old dance. And uh, yeah, it just seems like it's it's these this collection of people that cause the problems and that there are really good people in these organizations, but their voices are just drowned out by, by, by corporate interests, uh, you know, and uh, the almighty dollar again, it comes down to. Now talk to me a little bit about while we're talking about these regulatory committees, talk to me about um, the, the rotation in and out from the organizations to like, say somebody who sits on the board of the American heart association, then goes and is a CEO for Procter and Gamble. I mean, that's just, that didn't actually happen in that order, I'm right. guessing. But, but, but you but see they, a lot they, of that. They rotate in and out constantly. Right. Lobbyist, and you, senator, and you you see it in all these regulatory things. You know, like like the the chairman of the Fed is now the the one that controls our money in right. in the executive branch, and it's the same thing with like the food industry. They they rotate in and out of mm-hmm. from the private sector to the regulatory committees, and then back. And talk to me a little bit yeah. about that. I mean, it's a huge problem that that revolving door. Monsanto had several people that worked very high up, and I think that's why glyphosate was never really—I uh, don't want to say prosecuted, but was never really allowed to be fully vetted because it seemed like there were people from—I—I I don't want to uh, 
misquote this because I haven't looked it up recently, but I have written about it. And I, I believe it was the, I believe it was the EPA and the FDA that had members that sat uh, at some point on the board of Monsanto. Mm-hmm. And that's just a very dangerous precedent because at one moment you're arguing for the, for the benefit of your, of the private company you work for. And then the next moment, the same person, sometimes, you know, the next month, you know, they, they move from one position to another. And now they're supposed to be a health advocate for the American people. Right. I mean, you're telling me that all those ties, all those years at Monsanto, they just, they just sever instantaneously. Of course not. They had Human a change of heart. Was that? I said they had a change of heart and then now they want to crack down. <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, I am an optimist and I, I really do like to give people the benefit of the doubt, but when I, you know, eventually you just have, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you have to look at the evidence. And, um, and that's what, that's really what I do. I, I tell people all the time, I am a slave to the evidence. I will go where the evidence leads me. And sometimes it's led me to places that I didn't want to go. And sometimes, um, I've made changes to my own lifestyle and dietary, um, habits based on things I found out that went, that were completely counter to what I had believed you know, for, for most of my life, I mean, really studying the, the biochemistry of nutrition was a very enlightening experience because, um, you know, I shattered a whole bunch of my own beliefs, but hmm. that's a great practice to be in is to, uh, to constantly check yourself and to live outside of echo chambers. So I'm, I'm very careful to hear other people's arguments and, and, uh, you know, and, and consider them, but yeah, that, that revolving door is, is hugely problematic. And I don't know what the solution is because it seems like every, every president, every administration, it almost seems like they can't avoid it. So it's like, it's like watching a movie and uh, you know, some of my favorite movies are the ones that have actors I've never seen before Mm -hmm. because it, it sort of makes the air of uh, believability a little bit more, you know, significant. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you see a superhero, but you know, it's Tom Cruise, it's kind of hard to think of them as a superhero, Mm -hmm. but if it's an actor you've never seen before, you can really say, okay, I'm in this. And so I kind of want that to happen in politics. I want <laughs> some people that I haven't seen before from the Reagan, Bush, Clinton, right. Obama administration. I don't want to see those people anymore. Yeah. I know what they're all about. We haven't gotten any healthier under their watch. We haven't, you know, we, we, we just haven't achieved what I consider, you know, uh, we, we, we haven't furthered human potential, I think, in that time period. So I want some new actors on the stage that are not afraid to stand up and sort of speak out against some of these behemoths uh, that, that have essentially captured most of our politicians. Well, the problem is those corporations are the ones that own the the, the politicians. They're the ones that put them there. Right. So you can get like Reagan or whoever coming in office and being like, I'm going to have a presidency that doesn't have this person, this one of these specific people, and then – Six months later, he gets an office, and who do you see in those positions? It's the same damn people yeah. every single time mm-hmm. because um, they get in an office and realize, oh, these are the people that put me here. I owe them a favor. And um, a lot probably has to be said about uh, like campaign donations and stuff. I, I know there's supposedly regulations on that, but there's always ways around that. Right. And then those corporate interests still get met and those corporations still keep doing the same shitty things that they've always done because they're the ones that put the politicians there. Yeah, I did a recent post on that same thing and I actually named the top five um, recipients of campaign donations from pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, again, it's it's a uniparty. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the Romneys, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Obamas. It was, the, there's no... It's one party and you're not invited. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, 
during the the uh, last couple of years was the first time we had seen doctors come out and try to give contradictory, you know, um, opinions to things uh, using different facts and having them censored. Has there been a time before that that doctors have come out and tried to talk about things like against that and have been censored that we haven't noticed because it hasn't been in the spot like like COVID? That's a, that's a great question. And honestly, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to name any specifics, although people like Dr. Mercola, who is a, um, uh, an osteopathic doctor, um, and he was, you know, he was touting the benefits of vitamin D back in the nineties. Hmm. So, so he's been doing this for a very, very long time. And I don't know if you know the, the Google whistleblower, Zach Voorhees, mm-hmm. uh, but he had when, when he left Google, he had said uh, specifically that he was aware of search engine manipulation where people like Dr. Mercola, who were espousing the benefits of things like vitamin D and a lot of um, sort of more natural remedies, um, were being intentionally uh, driven down in the algorithm where mm-hmm. where you you couldn't even uh, eventually you couldn't actually access his website um, unless you actually typed it in. In other words, if you oh. tried to Google search him, you would never find him. Wow. No matter how deep. No matter how deep you went, they can bury you in the algorithm if they want. That's and that's so so that that's frightening considering how much. And so I tell people all the time, not only don't use Google, but you need to remove the the term Google from your lexicon in terms of when I say I want to search for something, people say I Google it. I, I am trying to be very careful about not using that term anymore. We have to start to disassociate from these companies because yes, the answer is. I think they've been censoring for a lot longer than we've even been aware. It's just overt now because because there's there was such a groundswell of people realizing that something was wrong, mm. that the censorship machine needed to ramp up. In other words, it wasn't a big deal in the 90s when people were talking about vitamin D and then they were just shoving them under the rug because there wasn't some great, you know, health crisis, but when everything happened and sort of, you know, sunlight is the, is the best disinfectant. And all of a sudden, all these doctors kind of came out and said, Hey, something's not adding up here. That's, I think now you're just more aware of that behemoth that censorship has become, uh, you know, big tech, but I think it's been there for a very long time. Um, even going back to the early days of the internet, I think it's been there in some, uh, in some way or another in a very more maybe covert way. I I think social media, the, expansion of social media recently has probably helped get some of that information out that even the early days of internet you you had to specifically go looking for that stuff to get that information and pre-internet was even harder but now with social media and they they call them all conspiracy theorists they call them whatever um misinformation fake news whatever um you, you got to trust the main sources that are so obviously trustworthy right. and not listen to all this fake news. So social media, I think, has helped spread some of that information and at least make people aware that information's out there to go look for so they know what they're looking for. If you can catch it before they take it off. Yes. <laughs> well, there's no doubt that it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, social media is great for so many things, and it's like anything. It's like any tool, right? A hammer can be used to build a house, and it can be used to kill somebody. So it's it's not uh, it's not the tool. It's the it's the people using it. I often say that YouTube is an amazing creation just run by terrible people, you mm-hmm. know? And it's just unfortunate because uh, some of these really could do such amazing work in the world, and they just, they just refuse to let it uh, be what it, you know, what it should be, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked quite a bit about 
like pharmaceutical for profit, like corporate pharmaceuticals. Um, we talked extensively about nutrition and stuff. Um, it, it's interesting to me how, like we we're saying, the shift in the last hundred years, how pharmaceutical or medical, supposedly medical, and uh, the food industry have kind of gone separate paths because of profits and stuff. They become their own industry, and they 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 don't even you don't even hear them kind of interlinked anymore. You don't hear like um, food being like part of your health mm-hmm. or being considered as a health art alternative too much. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the f- like corporate food for profit, the food industry, because um, you talk a lot about industry driven myths. Uh, with like like we talked earlier about breakfast being the the most important meal of the day, um, what are some of those myths that that um, you've heard that that people are still using today? And that obviously you knowing and studying this stuff in depth, you're just like, no, that that that's just a freaking myth. Um, we got to stop spreading that stuff. And the the first one that comes to mind is just the the, the war on meat. That, you know, that's one thing I want to talk about because that that's one thing that interested me most is you're like, uh, meat is not bad for you. I'm like, thank you because yeah, everybody I, these I'll days die on that hill. Yeah, everybody <laughs> these days is saying, hey, uh, go for alternatives like legumes and stuff like that or or lentils. Or this is the big one now. Yeah, <laughs> I think Bloomberg just had a thing on that. Yeah, that's what I mentioned. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, meat is the probably one of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. And it is one of the most bioavailable sources of vitamins, minerals, protein, essential fatty acids. I mean, you just that, but between that and eggs, Hmm. I I mean, I always call eggs nature's multivitamin. Hmm. Essentially it has everything except vitamin C. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just incredible. So I'll take both of those eggs and meat. I mean, they've been demonized for a long time because of well, in my opinion, it was never really good science or rigorous science, but it was also limited science. So we just didn't have the ability to assess things the way we did. And then people, again, people build careers on the fact that cholesterol and saturated fat cause heart disease, mm-hmm. which numerous studies have come out now to show there is there is almost no association between those two. And so correlation is not causation, but lack of correlation is definitely an indication that that those two things are not related. So, uh, but again, when you've got people who have built their entire careers and then you've got industries that have sprung up to create alternative products to these foods, I just think it's, you know, it's hysterical to me that you would think that a food that's been consumed for literally that, that may have helped the evolution of the human brain, that somehow that is now all of a sudden the cause of all of our modern diseases that have all crept up in the last couple hundred years. And coincidentally, it's not the man-made products that have also crept up incidentally in that same last couple hundred years. No, it must be the ancient food that's causing all the modern disease. Even if you approach that from like third grade logic, it makes no sense. But when you actually get into the biochemistry of it, I just want somebody to show me how cancer is or, you know, or any other disease is caused by meat. And I need you to leave out things like saturated fat and cholesterol for now, because, you know, again, th- those are, are, are heavily disputed, but someone needs to come to me and show me and explain to me, what is the mechanism of action? Again, I am data driven. If I find out, honestly, I'm, I, I have no desire to leave this earth early. So if I find out that, that red meat, I know exactly the mechanism and red meat is going to kill me early. I would stop eating it tomorrow. I tell people that all the time, but mm-hmm. it does not exist. The evidence is not there. So it's just myth and it gets, 
you, you know, everybody knows red meat's bad for you. You know, I have mm. people all the time tell me they're trying to trying to do good things for my health. I've given up red meat. And my first question is, why on earth would you do that? I know. I <laughs> Every time I go to my in-laws, they always have chicken. And I had a Father's Day dinner at my house the other a couple years ago, and I, I made steaks. And then I cooked up a couple chicken, and everybody ate the chicken and didn't touch the steak. And I'm like, are you serious? I got steak here. It's a crime. <laughs> it's a crime. I mean, it's not even a, it's not even a question. I mean, and, and then you have things like anemia being one of the most pervasive issues in the world. And, and so to keep telling people to stop eating red meat, which is an amazing source of heme iron, it's like, uh, I, again, it's yeah. almost as if these people want the population sick. And again, I can, you know, yeah. you can take that and leave it for what you want, but. <laughs> so continuing with like industry driven myths, um, what's your opinion of, uh, we grew up on it, both of us, the, the food py- pyramid that like existed in the 80s, 90s, got kind of altered in the <clears throat> 2000s where, because you talk about eat less carbs, eat more meats, eat more this and that. Well, they didn't call them carbs, they called them grains, <clears throat> but that was dead at the bottom of like the biggest, right. the baseline of the food pyramid. Where did the food pyramid come from? Did that come from one of these industry driven things or is that somebody that thought they knew what they were talking about? So it's a great story, and you should look up a woman named Lewis Light, L-U-I-S-E-L-I-G-H-T, Lewis Light. She was a nutritionist in the 1980s, and her and a team of scientists worked on a food pyramid for the USDA. And she has this amazing letter that she wrote to the public. Uh, I think she's still alive, actually. Uh, She wrote, the most recently was in 2004 when they were doing the 2005 Dietary Guidelines. And then basically she said that the food pyramid that she and all of the scientists created resembles, you know, it's... the food pyramid that's out now doesn't resemble what her and the scientists put forward. And it was all because of uh, concessions to the various industries. Mm -hmm. So she said they altered wording to emphasize processed foods over fresh and whole foods. They lower the servings of fruits and vegetables. They increased servings of wheat and grains. Originally she had said something like three to four. They increased that from six to 11 and put it at the bottom of the pyramid as a concession to the wheat and corn industry. Um, They even did things like removed terms in the guidelines that said like eat less of something like sugar. And it was just they they wanted to change the terms to like avoid too much because they didn't want to impact the the sales of profit, you know, profitable, you know, fun processed foods. So she predicted that this would create a disease epidemic that was going to go out of control, that none of this was evidence based. It was not science based. It was driven by industry. And I mean, her prediction was spot on. She wrote an entire letter. It's pretty amazing. Um, she wrote it to the public, just basically saying, "Hey, this, you know, th- this is not what we came up with, and I don't want my name associated with this." And uh, it's a very, very interesting story. If you want to read a great book on it, read um, uh, Denise Minger's book, "A Death by Food Pyramid." That is a an amazing book. It's a quick oh, wow. read. It's a short book, but it gives you a great history on the on the dietary guidelines and the food pyramid and how non-evidence-based it is. It's really interesting that the what we know as health or what we're told as health and taught in health classes, I mean, the food pyramid was on the back of sugar cereal boxes <laughs> <Right>. for our, <laughs> our generation growing up. It's interesting to me that health can be bought just like everything else, right. like, yeah. like, like what they push, what they educate you in, in the schools. It can be bought at a price too. And all these corporations, these mega, mega food corporations that basically own every other industry from media to to whatever um to the education and stuff how they can just pay a few million dollars a couple hundred million dollars and then 
the health experts, quote unquote, will say, yeah, this is healthy because right. um, we said it is. And we're the yeah. we're the final say in what's healthy. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a huge scandal at Harvard uh, where the sugar industry paid off a Harvard scientist, Frederick Stair. Uh, they, they, in the 1960s, they paid him off to essentially um, push the blame for heart disease off of sugar and onto fat. And that's really one of the reasons that we think fat is so bad for us. It was, mm -hmm. it was purchased science. Um, ironically enough, this was all uncovered because sugar industry documents were found. I don't think it was freedom of information request. I think it was something even stranger than that, like a sugar, a, a major sugar industry had like shut down a, a major headquarters and some of the files were left over and a reporter literally found the emails. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I mean, just, you know, one of those crazy strokes of luck. And it was actually published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So you can find this in the medical literature. Oh, wow. They named the scientists. Um, and ironically enough at Harvard, I think the nutrition department is still named after Frederick Stair. <laughs> so, I mean, you just... The, it's it's everywhere you look. And I think that's why people have a hard time grasping it, that they think, well, not everything can be a conspiracy. And then you have to kind of say, well, listen, if if one person is capable of lying to you right. and a whole bunch of people get together and lie to you, know, th then you exponentially increase the chances that somebody is going to lie to you. And when mm -hmm. multiple people get together to lie to you, that's a conspiracy. It's not that rare. And yeah. when they find it's they can make a lot of money doing it, yeah. then it becomes even more prominent. And that... Um, um, kind of ties in with what we see with like the COVID treatments and stuff today. It's like if somebody can pay off um, the the health organizations that say what's healthy, why do you think it's impossible that a medical or pharmaceutical company can pay mm -hmm. off the CDC or the NIH right. or whatever to say, hey, this is the only viable option here? Because, I mean, like, like you said, if, if it happens over in that industry, why the hell wouldn't you think it's possible that it happens over here? Especially when you get uh, these vaccines or whatever. I I don't want to get kicked off or to keep talking about this, but um, – when, when these vaccine companies want to suppress the information for 75 years and um, all, all, all this information, they don't even want to make it public for until all the problems can potentially have run their course. And it, it's just interesting to me, people's mindsets. Well, it's not science. I was, you know, I'm, I was just trained formally in science. So mm -hmm. let me just tell you that if I told my professor, here's, here's my final you know, my final paper, my final work, but I'm not going to present you the evidence for 75 years, I wouldn't get a passing grade. <laughs> it's not how science is done. It's silly to think that that's acceptable, especially in something that you're telling the American public is safe, right. effective, and is mandated. Mm -hmm. It's just, I, I I can't believe anybody would argue that, but we're, we've reached a point where people ha will actually argue mm -hmm. the other side of that, which, which to me at some point, I just think, well, some people are just never going to come around. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're getting close to being out of time. Um, how much, because we talk about the for-profit, the food, the health, the, the pharmacy and stuff. How much of you think that is just specifically, hey, we're trying to make more profit, so we're going to do shitty things to make more profit? And how much uh, do you think, from a conspiracy side, I guess, um, is, there a, is there a sinister part of this? Like um, people talk about fluoride and how they intentionally like wanted to dumb down the population with fluoride or – as far as like hormones in, in, in certain in like the water systems or even like Alex Jones saying they're putting the shit in the water to make make the frogs gay or whatever. Um, like how Atrazine. much yeah. how much uh, 
Do you do you think there's a sinister side of this to maybe dumb down the population or make us more like uh, pliable, like our brains more pliable, so we like follow suit? Or you think it's just hey, we want to make more money? You know, I I try not to get into other people's heads because it's really Still hard there? to know. I, I, yeah, I just would say that there's enough there's enough coincidence that that it starts to become something that you at least have to consider because there's very clear evidence that that a lot of these additives in foods and processed foods in general are are problematic. And at the very least, I tell people, we need to at least examine this. And I think when I start to cross the line from profit to nefarious is when is when people refuse to even entertain the notion or even look at the evidence. Mm-hmm. Once they put up those blinders, that you know, I, I have no, I have no uh, other choice but to conclude that it must be something nefarious because I'm telling you that you can still make a profit. I'm not trying to strip you of your profit. I'm just trying to say that profit doesn't, you know, can also coincide with foods that are healthy for people. It's it's not beyond the realm of possibility to create foods that are healthy and also profitable. It's just that it's not going to be as profitable mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And so again, that's where that line gets blurred. Are we now knowingly doing things to people? Well, some of the industries have been shown, through, again, through through documentation, to knowingly be pumping things into food that cause harm. So then it's up to the consumer to decide, are they doing this? Is it, is it pure profit or is it, or is it, or is it something else? And I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that there are far too many coincidences in the nutrition world alone. And never mind the pharmaceutical industry. Like I told you the story about bear. I mean, that's, that's not, I mean, I guess you could say that's profit because they didn't want to lose the money, but that's straight up murder. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, that line gets very, very, very blurry at that point. Well, we're we're running out of time. I got a couple more questions from from people on social media and in the comments. I wanted to hit you with before we let you get out of here. I have so many other things yeah, questions right. written down even, and and every answer raises like three or four more questions. But um, this is from Tabitha. We had her on last week. Uh, she sat in as a guest um, last week with us. Uh, she says. How do people know which pharmaceuticals are good and beneficial and which are unnecessary propaganda or just population control moneymakers? Science and medicine are not all bad, but where is the line? The health industry was strayed a bit, in my opinion, as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I don't, again, I think that, I think we've normalized pharmaceuticals as we age. We think, well, we're getting older, so therefore we need X, Y, and Z. Polypharmacy is a huge problem. You know, be, I have nurse friends who know people that are on 17 different prescription medications. I mean, wow. I would say that that is a, a situation where you, you have irresponsible doctors. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there's, I, I can't think of a case other than the rarest of the rarest of the rare that would require 17 medications. So yeah. I think it's gotten, you know, it's, it's the first line of defense for doctors. And in their defense, they're not trained to do a lot of other things. The first mm-hmm. thing they're trained to do is reach for the prescription pad. So mm-hmm. I think what we need to do is start retooling the education of doctors so that they have other tools in their tool belt. Um, so if you're a consumer, I would say always make pharmaceuticals the last choice because they don't cure disease. They mm-hmm. simply suppress symptoms. Right. And symptom suppression is not, again, is not synonymous with a cure disease. Just because you don't have the symptom anymore doesn't mean the root cause isn't still there. So um, I'm not saying that we never need to use pharmaceuticals, but we just need to make them a last resort and they just need to be relegated to the place in society that they belong. Right now they're at the top and they re- they really shouldn't be there. Hmm. 
Well, I, I would think suppressing symptoms a lot of times would be a bad thing because then you don't have the signs that your body naturally gives you to say, hey, something's wrong. Like if you spray paint over a rust spot on a car, that doesn't make, make the, right. the, the problem with like the, the moisture that's right. getting into it and causing the problem. That doesn't make that go away. It just makes it so you can't see it anymore. And if you can't see those symptoms anymore, then you no longer know that your body has something wrong with it. And that's like when I had my acid reflux, the doctor gave me some kind of medication and was like, this will help, which is fine. It stopped so it didn't hurt so much for, you know, however long the prescription lasted, but it didn't really fix anything. And those drugs are meant, they even say in the box, 14 days, and most people are on those for decades. And Mm -hmm. you have no idea the downstream consequences of those Mm. drugs. I am am very much anti-proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers and all that. Hmm. It there, yeah. So that's the perfect example: the rust and the and the and the the the, the, the drugs to stop acid reflux. You're not addressing the root cause, and so the, the the problem is still there, marinating in the background, and may eventually get worse. Those signs, the body is telling you something is wrong. Hmm. And the very last question I got for you tonight, and this is back to I got uh, one after you though. Okay, <laughs> the, not the last question. The last question from commenters is: Is milk considered good for you? Is milk good for you? Oof. Loaded question. Um, Ooh, dang. <laughs> so I'll go out on a limb and say raw milk is is very healthy. Um, very hard to get. Illegal in most states. Really? Um, well, if it's yeah, illegal, doesn't that mean it's bad for you? What's that? I said if it's illegal, doesn't that mean it's bad for you? <laughs> well, they want to tell you that it's for safety, but um, mm-hmm. it's legal in, in, in California, and you don't hear about people dropping dead in California supermarkets because they buy raw milk and you know take it home and drink it. And I've been drinking <laughs> raw dairy. I have raw yogurt, raw uh, kefir, um, which is just like a fermented milk. Um, I I have been consuming raw dairy for years and it's no problem. So like um, I would say that milk is not the best choice for dairy. I like kefir and yogurt because they're fermented and so they're they have beneficial bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're gonna if you're gonna go with milk, try to go with raw milk. Uh, because that maintains some of the structural integrity, some of the enzymes. A lot of times people, when they drink raw milk, if they're lactose intolerant even, they won't have as many issues because those enzymes are still present that get destroyed during the pasteurization process. Hmm. What about like almond milk? Not a fan. I was going to say, is there any Uh, benefits of the other milks like soy milk or almond milk or anything like that? I mean, again, you know, so soy, you know, there's about soy in this country is about 94% genetically modified. So if you mm. can find a super clean soy milk, maybe, mm. um, but I steer clear of soy and almonds are again, another one of those nuts that are very high in omega-6. So mm. uh, nut milk made from them, you know, requires a lot of wow. almonds. And so you're getting a lot of omega-6. So in a diet that's already heavily omega-6, Right. You know, I just go with real actual dairy if you can, or mm. coconut. Coconut okay. is, a, is a decent substitute, coconut milk, coconut cream, um, because those still have a lot of uh, excellent properties that, that are contained in the coconut. So mm. I, I would I would use coconut if I wasn't going to use uh, 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 milk. Okay. What was your last okay. question? Last question. All right. So over the last couple of years, I personally have a lot of skepticism towards the, the medical industry, as we've talked about. What kind of questions – so if I'm, I'm looking for a doctor, what kind of questions would I want to ask a doctor to know that I, I'm, I'm going with someone who's going to be real with me, give me good information, and not just give me the corporate line? <laughs> so that's a, that's a great question. It's also a, like a feeling out process. So I've, mm-hmm. I've had to fire several doctors 
And I've also shopped around. So one of my points of advice would be, don't be afraid to shop around. Mm -hmm. And so don't be afraid, you know, you're the consumer. You don't just walk into a, right. a, a used car lot and have the guy say, well, this is the one you're taking. You're like, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you, you got to do a little bit of shopping. So, um, but I think the most important thing and, um, and, and what I tell a lot of people is, what does your gut say? I know, you know, sort of bringing it full circle. Um, have a conversation with them and ask them what their philosophy is. And I think that's a really big thing because if they don't have a philosophy, that's a red flag. Um, and maybe they haven't been asked that question. You want to be in a partnership with a doctor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, ask them, are they quick to run to the prescription pad? Do they have any patients that are not on any prescription drugs? Um, how much uh, do they, you know, what do they think about nutrition when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to the health puzzle? What do they think about exercise? What kind of shape is the doctor in? Right. You know, when I was a personal trainer, um, you know, I, I saw other trainers that were like, that, that were not in shape. And I said, it's not that you can't be a good personal trainer or not that you can't be a good nutritionist if you're not in shape, but there's some disconnect there. So if I've got yeah. a doctor who's, you know, morbidly obese, I'm going to have to question either he knows what to do and he won't do it, or he doesn't know what to do. It's mm -hmm. one or the other. So, um, so I always, I look at the, again, the, the whole picture. I want to know um, what kind of a relationship I'm going to have with this person. Cause we are both the driver of my health. It's not just you telling me what to do. And very often you can, you can snuff out a lot of, um, potential problems by asking just some of those simple questions, because most of the time it's not going to be a partnership. It's going to be, I'm the doctor. I went to medical school. I've got a God complex and I'm going to tell you what to do. And, you know, don't confuse your Google search with my, with my medical degree, which is one of my favorite stupid lines because, <laughs> you know, we live in the information age and people yeah. have access to information and people aren't stupid. And, and you didn't know anything before you went to medical school either, buddy, you weren't born with this. Mm -hmm. Everyone learns, mm -hmm. you know, I learned everyone goes to school. If they, if they go to school, they learn, no one's born with this knowledge. So um, if they, if they, if they talk to you, like you're a partner, and they do value other modalities and they, and you ask about nutrition and all those things, then I think you're probably, you know, in the right place. Also someone who's willing to see you maybe more than once a year. Mm -hmm. I think getting a random set of labs once a year and then, and then having a, maybe a life altering prescription drug be given based on <laughs> one lab result one time a year. Mm -hmm. I think that's malpractice right. because so many factors can, can influence that one snapshot in time. So if I see some lab markers that are unusual, I'll tell somebody, well, let's, let's do it again in three months. Mm -hmm. Let's see what happens. Let's see, let's, let's get these labs drawn again, or let's get some additional functional labs drawn and see really what's let's drill down, you know, maybe give them a scenario. So if I come back to you and say, I have high cholesterol, my favorite term, what are you going to do? And if their first answer is, well, I mean, I would put you on a statin. Then what they're doing is they're, they're doing doctor by algorithm. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, we got this, now we have to give this. So those are the people that I would tend to uh, try to steer clear from and, and just try to find someone that you resonate with. Well, we are definitely out of time, Jay. This has been an awesome conversation, information that I've never heard most of it, never even talked about because mm -hmm. I didn't know that it needed to be talked about uh, aside from <laughs> listening to your show. Um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find more information from you, where they can find you on social media? Uh, you also have, I, is it up and running your retreat there? I, I know you had talked about it. Is that going or is that still a process? Yeah. I mean, so the, the, where, okay. So you can go to perpetual health CO on Instagram and the link tree takes you everywhere. It'll even take you to the website, which is perpetualhealth.co. Um, on that page, on the homepage, there's a section for an ancestral wellness retreat. 
And so what we're doing uh, in October of this year is we're going to bring 20 people. We could only fit 20 people because I'm in the process of trying to actually build a retreat center in the, in the mountains or woods of oh, wow. New Hampshire. And oh, wow. that's going to take a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. But what I want is to give people immersion therapy. I want people to... So you asked the questions about what is ancestral health? Well, the whole point of the retreat is to expose people to what ancestral health is, like group fasting and some lectures and some, you know, some time outdoors in nature. We want to teach people how to go out in the woods and find like edible berries, you know, like all kinds of different things, cold therapy, sauna therapy, expose people to all different kinds of healing modalities, mm-hmm. along with structured classes that I will teach. I have a few colleagues that will teach informational seminars, Q and A's, um, all, you know, we'll also have a, uh, a nose to tail chef on board for that entire weekend in October, where you'll be able to have bone broth and, and, you know, like, you know, cured meats and, and, mm. you know, it'll be sort of like the, you know, the, the, the top of the food chain, if you'll forgive the pun. And, uh, <laughs> so that's going to take place in October for a weekend, October 6th to the 9th. Uh, on Martha's Vineyard, actually. So we, oh, wow. we just chose something that would be a nice destination for people to come and and connect with a community of people who are trying to uh, maybe regain some of their human potential and who also want to just meet uh, curious and like-minded people. And you can find out all about that retreat there. And it, it's going to be a lot of fun. And again, we, we only have 20 spots, but that's just for this first one. We just wanted to do something in the year 2020. We felt like after the last two years, people needed some human contact. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if people want to come you know, uh, I, I said a while, I want to take perpetual health out of the virtual world and bring it into the real world. And this is the first attempt uh, to do that. So I would love to see cool. uh, anybody uh, that, that is interested. I would love to see you guys there in October. It's going to be a lot of fun. That sounds really awesome. I yeah, love that so much. Um, Jay, it's been awesome having you on on the show. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we learned a lot, definitely. Uh, we'd love to get you back on again. Like I said, um, so many questions coming up that we can't even get to in the two, two and a half hours that we've had you. So um, we'd love to get you back on some, sometime if you're up for it. Um, otherwise, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for yeah, taking definitely. the time out. Oh, absolutely, guys. It was my pleasure, and I'd be happy to come back, uh, you know, anytime. All right, awesome. man. Thanks a lot. Have a good night. Good night. All right, everybody. That was uh, Jay Gulinello. He's a nutritional therapist, and uh, he has a lot of good things to say about the health industry and the food industry. Um <laughs> We're going to get out of here for tonight. Thanks for checking in. Stop back by uh, next week, same time, same channel. You know the drill, 7 p.m. Central Time every Monday night. Uh, thanks to all you, any new listeners that popped in. Check out some of our old stuff. Check us out all over social media, like we say, every single week. We're going to get out of here. You ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. All right, have a great rest of your week. Peace. Goodbye. The Brick the Bell podcast is brought to you by you. So pat yourself on the back, because without you, we would be talking to ourselves. A special thanks to our Patreon members, Justin Zielinski, Remzo Martinez, Stephanie Parker, and T.O. Jacobson. A shout-out to our sponsors, Run Your Mouth Coffee, the On The Run Podcast, and Goulash Media. If you'd like to help support us, visit patreon.com slash breakthebell, or buy our garbage at breakthebell.bigcartel.com. Get back here next week and let us continue to invade your ear holes. And as always, never stop talking.